I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Cinematic Universe, the podcast that does for comic book movies what men do for Firmascira. I'm Joe Cunningham and joining me to help make sense of the comics behind the movies are... Sir Patrick and James Hunt. Uh, we'll skip over the latest comic book movie and TV news this week because this is one of our special episodes where we are talking about a movie that is brand new in cinemas. So what we'll do is we will talk in a spoiler-free section about our reactions to the film, whether we liked it or not, but we won't give any specifics away there. Um, then we'll take a little uh, break, we'll listen to the trailer or something, and then we'll come back and dive into... Patty Jenkins 2017 movie Wonder Woman for a spoiler-filled chat. But before any of that, I'm going to ask Seven James to explain to me a comic book concept that as a movie fan, I just don't understand. And this week, one of our listeners actually got in touch on Twitter uh, with something that they didn't understand. And luckily, I read it and I thought, I don't understand that either. So that's good. I can still ask Seven James. So um, this is uh, Twitter, user, Twitter user at elbows underscore Selbo. He says, since most of the DC heroes operate out of fictional American cities um, and in Wonder Woman, uh, the tiny spoiler, Wonder Woman goes to London. Are there any fictional cities in DC's Britain slash Europe? And I guess, I guess generally any non-American fictional cities in DC, like fictional countries. So what's the deal, guys? I, I think in general, real countries tend to have, um, you know, their real cities. Uh, although how accurate a portrayal of those cities tend to be, uh, probably <laughs> depends on the comic that you're reading, um, at any given time. Um, London is very much London in the DC universe. Um, I mean, there have been, there will be characters in and around it. I mean, the most obvious example I can think of actually that immediately comes to mind is John Constantine. I mean, you know, London is a hugely important part of Hellblazer stories and Hellblazer was set in the DC universe and then wasn't and now is again. Um, and there's, there'll be things like, I remember Grant Morrison did a Batman storyline set in the UK, predominantly in London, but also, um, around uh, other areas uh, and set up the characters of the Knight and Squire who then um there was a very short series by Paul Cornell that had them in London um yeah they don't tend to I don't really know why but they don't tend to create fictional cities for countries other than 
the US. But I mean, they do create fictional countries, and obviously, you know, Marvel have got a few. Marvel's got like Wakanda and Latveria. Um, DC have tended to. There are, I think, DC have got what you would probably call an equivalent of of Latveria, which is Markovia. Um, which is their sort of generic Eastern European kind of, you know, ruled by a ruling family country. And that there's a couple of DC characters, um, Geoforce and Terra who come from there. Um, <laughs> all your favorites. <laughs> where, where DC's fictional countries tend to most commonly be centered is in the Middle East. Um, because you've got, uh, Quirac, <laughs> uh, which was, Quirac was created basically to be, a country that could be a generic terrorist country kind of in the late 80s when they wanted to do storylines about characters like Superman fighting terrorism, but they didn't want to have it be in actual countries. And so, I mean, there's also, uh, there's Kandak, which is where Black Adam comes from. Um, that's also uh, kind of Middle East, North Africa sort of area. Um, Bialya, which um, is, again, sort of Middle East, but deliberately being quite close to Russia, because that was in, I think, actually, Joe, you will have read um, the early Justice League International stuff where that first appeared. Right, Bialya okay. is the country um, where the three superheroes from the other dimension end up, and their ruler is this petty little tin pot dictator who wants to um, take on Russia with them, basically. <laughs> I mean, uh, the the kind of dominant theme here is that countries tend to get invented to try and avoid offending other exactly. specific countries. Um, oh, there is a great example, actually, as well, um, that uh, Greg Rucker uh, used in an Adventures of Superman story uh, called Umek. Uh, that's spelled U-M-E-C. Um, and its name stands for unnamed Middle Eastern country. <laughs> but as far as, as far as cities go and as far as London goes, the only example I can think of, of, um, like a, a fictional British city actually comes from the Batman TV series. Um, they did a three part story set in London, but it was a very kind of, over-the-top, stylized, swinging 60s, Austin Powers-style London, and they actually called it, it Londinium. Um, <laughs> and I'm just... I didn't know some of, this, some, of these, didn't remember some of these details, but just on Wikipedia, Scotland Yard was called Island Yard, Carnaby Street was <laughs> Barnaby Street, Fleet Street was Bleat Street. Wow, um, satire. Yeah, so that was... That's about so in 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 the Batman TV verse there is no London there is Londinium, um, but generally London is you know the real London. <laughs> Following convention there would be a London and Londinium would be a nearby sister city. Um, well that's the, I mean that's the problem DC have with their fictional cities is that yeah they coexist with all of the real ones so like America is really crowded. Yeah, <laughs> um, you know the East Coast has got Gotham and New York and Metropolis on it. I mean, well it's. It's worth pointing out, like, the reason these cities exist is because, like, in the 40s or whatever, when they were making the original DC comics, like, the convention was just set your, put your hero in a sort of fictional everywhere place. Yeah, they, they would it never wasn't, it wasn't really named. until, wasn't really until Marvel started doing the Marvel Universe and setting it all in New York that DC went, oh, we're going to have some of that and, like, made a, a single universe that reflected the real one. Hmm. I think, yeah, and that probably sort of would have been when they would have started to actually give the cities more distinct personalities as well. It's like, even if they had the names beforehand, they wouldn't necessarily have had characteristics that you would associate with them. It's just Metropolis, that's where Superman is. I mean, Metropolis is called Metropolis because it's a metropolis. It's, you know, <laughs> when it's when it's first introduced, it's practically not even a name, you know. 
Um, mild-mannered reporter at a major metropolitan newspaper just means in a in a big city, not in metropolis. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, great. So um, a bit more of an understanding then of the fictional comic book cities. Um, but we'll move on now to the main event, or at least the uh, at least the teaser for the main event, because we're going to talk Wonder Woman now without spoilers to begin with. So if you haven't seen the film yet, but you don't want to be spoiled on plot specifics. You can stick around, hear what we thought, and then pause it when we get to the spoiler section. Or, you know, you can not listen anyway. But you've you're already you've already got this far. Why not stay with us a little bit longer? Um, so, Seb, James, I know probably this is a film that if you follow, if our listeners follow any of us on social media, they've probably got a better idea at least of what James and I think of this movie because we've been tweeting about it uh, quite a bit since we saw it. Uh, so it might be less of a surprise this time. Uh, but guys, do you want to go into just your immediate reactions to Wonder Woman? And yeah, is this the, is this the first good DCEU movie? <laughs> like, I enjoyed Batman v Superman and Suicide Squad to a point, but. Insane. <laughs> but this is definitely the first good one. And for me, it was really, like, really good. Like, probably I enjoyed it more than. Maybe just because it was, like, original and a bit different, but I enjoyed it more than most of Marvel's output for the last five years. And as, like, a massive Marvel fanboy, that's kind of <laughs> amusing to me. See, I'm, I'm going I'm to take issue with the reason why, even the reason why you like it more than those, because other than a few things, original and different is not how I'd describe it. The way I feel about it is that they've basically made a Marvel movie, and a, and a very good one, <laughs> but... Um, yeah, but a Marvel movie starring a female <laughs> superhero. Well, yeah, which you know, um, I mean, I definitely, I mean, I, I, I was quite taken aback by your immediate reaction to it on Twitter. I hadn't seen it at the point that you tweeted that you thought it was, you know, one of the absolute best of recent years. I do think it's very, very good, um, but I think, I think overall, as a film and structurally and story wise and a few thematic elements and one particular one that we'll go into in the spoiler section, um, <laughs> I don't think it's perfect in a lot of what it does. What I do think it's perfect in is, is the portrayal of the character. And I mean, it's, we are going to make so many comparisons to Captain America, the first Avenger throughout, but I'm going to make the first one here, which is that, um, the way I feel about this version of Wonder Woman is how I feel about the movie version of Captain America in that they have instantly created a definitive version of the character that supersedes pretty much everything that the comics have ever done with yeah. that character. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, nothing I can say in terms of criticisms about the film have anything to do with the character or Gal Gadot um, or even really to do with um, Steve Trevor or Chris Pine either. Like those, those two, I mean, it's, I don't want to... I'm wary of bigging up Pine and that character too much at the expense of the lead, but they're both great, and and we'll get into that. I don't think it's possible to do that, like <laughs> because I mean Chris Pine is great, but I kind of came out of the film and like fired off five or six tweets, and at the end I was like, oh, and Chris Pine's also great as well, yeah. like, but he, he's just he's he's really good, but it's it's a and and it's a role that. Um, I did see um, former podcast uh, Caroline Cedar tweeting about this, how it was kind of frustrating for her to see a love interest that well-written in a superhero movie and given, <laughs> that, and given that much to do. Yeah. yeah, And I think it is true because I was thinking, like, even in comparison to, like, Hayley Atwell in 
the first Avenger, he never really disappears. Mm. But I think what why I liked Chris Pine in this movie so much because I was like, that is what every love interest in a superhero yeah, movie should. They say. should get that much to do. It shouldn't be a Rachel McAdams in Doctor Strange situation. Oh, it should be a every love interest should be getting the Chris Pine kind of stuff here. Yeah, like even and especially if they're women. Yes, like that's that's the problem is that. Chris Pine is a dude, so he gets to do, like, dude action stuff, whereas mm. really every superhero movie should have that sort of equal split between the two characters. Yeah, exactly. And so it's it's not something I want to criticise Wonder Woman for. It's something that I think you should hold Wonder Woman up for and say, hey, look, this is doing it right. All of you movies where your love interests are of the other gender, th- that's, you're the ones that should be should be looking at this yeah, and I mean, I do, shame a little bit. I do quickly want to say as well, like, he doesn't really have an arc and everything he does is there in support of her character. So I think in that sense, they didn't didn't overdo it. Yeah, and and again, I think when once we get into spoilery stuff, there's the stuff I'd like to talk about that character, and uh, and I, I think the movie handles him in a in a really really smart way. But yeah, just just to to add my uh, my thoughts into the mix, I think I liked it more than you, even James. I <laughs> I can't think of a superhero movie I have enjoyed this much since the Avengers, um, and I think this is one of the the kind of the best examples of the superhero genre uh full stop i i i absolutely adored it yeah i mean i i agree with that i think the thing for me is that i think it's easily the best that has been done by warner slash dc since like you have to go back to the original superman films for me and i enjoyed it even more than those so yeah i mean i i I think Gal Gadot's part, and I'm I, I'm also aware. I'm sure it's supposed to be pronounced Gal Gadot, but I can't. I, I'm going to slip in in and out of that. So let's just say Gal was incredible, a real like an absolute revelation. Because I talked about like when the when this film was kind of first making its way through development about like I've I've not disliked her anywhere else, but I've not seen anything to like say to me, oh yeah, she's going to knock a superhero movie out of the park when she's the lead. Um, I mean, even when she turned up and was good at the end of Batman v Superman, I was like, yeah, the character sound looks good. She had a couple of nice moments, but still, I, I, I didn't know that this movie was going to be great. But she's incredible. She's incredible. I think a lot of people, and I, and I would include certainly myself, and I don't know if you guys would agree as well in that, I think we're guilty of thinking coming out of um, Batman v Superman, it was like, well, you know, uh, she looks great. She can do the action stuff. She she brought across that r- a real sense of of joy in the action stuff. And we, you know, we, we and many other people talked about how like the you know the one truly great moment in Batman v Superman, even if you hate the rest of the film, is that bit where she smiles part way through yeah. the fight, and you're like, hey, this is what this kind of thing should be. Um, but I think we maybe um, you know kind of underestimated and kind of thought and i don't even know if it's partly to do with the accent but i think a lot of people were wary of whether she would carry an entire film in terms of actually delivering dialogue and emotional beats and stuff um but you know in this what she does is firstly like that sense of joy is in every single frame that she's on screen you know i mean well notwithstanding the fact that you know there are sadder slash emotional moments but basically that that sense of I am a superhero and that's a really great thing like runs through absolutely everything but also she completely does sell the emotional stuff now admittedly you know she's not 
Tony Stark. So she's not a character who has to deliver lots of zinging wisecracks and fast talking dialogue. Um, but I think the film successfully, uh, you know, makes the best of what she is very good at, which is, um, the presence and the charisma and, you know, as I say, like totally selling the emotional stuff as well. Um, you know, the, the, the character stuff is just really strong. And yeah, it's, it is just like, you, you don't want her to not be on screen at any point in the film. It's because she's just a completely magnetic presence in terms of, and that's why I say, you know, I, I think while I don't as wholeheartedly love this film as you two, because I, I think it has problems, but they are problems around her. Like, I think it's a five star character in a four star film, basically. Yeah. I, oh, I, I think that's fair. I, I presume that I'm going to, once we actually get into the problems, either go, Oh, I hadn't considered that or just it's not going to bother me as much mm-hmm. because, um, yeah, I, I loved her and I love, I, I, I think I, I think the work that Patty Jenkins here does here, um, can't be understated. She's, she's not credited as a writer on this film, but it sounds like she basically rewrote it. It sounds like the script is basically hers, but she couldn't be credited because of, uh, like, okay, <laughs> WGA stuff. Um, but the, the way she shoots this film, uh, like I've said that the, the the production design, the score, every everything in this film comes together so so well, and the way Patty Jenkins presents the character of Wonder Woman, the way she shoots her, the way that we, we get hero shots all the time, that kind of like every, every five minutes, I was kind of like leaning forward in my seat and going, "Oh wow, why why why, why do I why do I feel this kind of like." like chest swelling like <laughs> like from from very early on in the film like the very first scene that we see uh Gal Gadot after after a couple of sequences with like younger actresses playing the character I was like oh I feel like I already know who this character is I feel like I already know her outlook I already know what she stands for and for the rest of the film I was just going wow she's great she's she's so great and like I was saying this is this is in a, in a way that I don't think Marvel has done even. And I love a lot of, I love loads of the Marvel characters. And I, and I think the Chris Evans comparison is great because this, that's the closest comparison for, for Marvel. But I think what they, what, what Patty Jenkins has done here is gone. This character's a god. She is, she has the most noble of intentions. There's no kind of, there's no kind of like massive moral conflict in her. She is just, she is just a person who absolutely loves everyone that's around her and loves that the world, the world that she lives in. And I, I think she, I think we, we have an icon who's created here on the level of the Christopher Reeve Superman, because that's, that's yeah, the that, character well, that I kept thinking of. That's, that's, that's what I said. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. That's definitely what I I came out thinking. I was like, this is the, this is going to be the film for girls that Superman was for boys in the seventies or whatever. Like that's how good we're talking. I, and I think there's, I sort of, um, I've, I dimly recall, uh, talking about this on our late night Avengers podcast recording about how, um, when it comes down to it, really the, the best of these, films and the iconic ones that you truly remember are the ones that actually just really go back to properly being a superhero and and what being a superhero 
should be yeah. all about. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, in terms of the kind of overall canon, I think probably the major exception, and again, I probably said this on the Avengers one, is maybe the Dark Knight, but that's kind of doing something a bit different anyway. But in general, like, it just... It almost seems like such a no-brainer to say that, look, you know, okay, okay, it is fun to have, obviously, an Iron Man with, you know, kind of uh, a slight, you know, slightly, not exactly skewed moral sense, but, you know, sort of slightly different morals or, you know, a slightly checkered past or, you know, you know, or, you know, Thor trying to redeem himself or the Guardians of the Galaxy being fun rogues and that kind of thing. But actually, if you do it right, then the best type of superhero story is about superheroes who really are just straight up superheroes. It doesn't mean they're boring. If, if someone like Superman or Wonder Woman or whoever is boring, it's because they're being written in a boring way. It's not because (laughs) the idea of just being a superhero driven by an innate desire to, to be good to people. Yeah. Like don't, Um, don't confuse moral (laughs) complexity with being interesting. Yeah. And, you know, obviously, you know, Batman is Batman and and Batman is great and Batman is great for all kinds of reasons, a lot of which are to do with trappings and history and that kind of thing. But really, like, who could say that they wouldn't rather watch someone just being so damn good, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Yeah, it's like I said, like, I, I genuinely found this character, like, uh, inspiring and empowering the whole way through the film. Mm-hmm. And she was interesting to me. And yeah, there's, there's no kind of, there's no kind of in, interior conflicts or like, there's no, you know, she's, she's not a character who has to go on a journey and get over some personal flaws to become a better superhero. She is a fucking awesome superhero from word, from word one. But what's interesting about her is, is her going out and trying to understand this world that she's not been a part of. So seeing her get to grips with the world of man and seeing her understand what defines mankind and, and all that stuff is interesting. Seeing her relationships with other characters is interesting. Um, yeah, we, we don't need all of that other stuff. And so if I can just be like in awe of the superhero and then interested in the kind of the person behind the superhero, that's that's more than enough. And the uh, the one area where I think this movie does kind of uh is is lacking a bit is is in the villains and all that kind of stuff. But I almost didn't care about like the the generic superhero like the 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 plotting kind of stuff of the superhero movie because they'd got all the other stuff so right and that the movie could have just like the movie could have just petered out at the end and she could have just like carried on strolling around the western front and i would have been like you you don't need to give me a narrative conclusion i'm still gonna think that this movie's great i mean i mean well just quickly before like we get off that point the thing that i think is important about wonder woman is that it's a dc superhero film which does what the dc characters do best which is be sort of iconic well, I was, uh, what I was literally just going to say was, I mean, not to make this all about the male characters, and it is great that, that the film that they've done this with is Wonder Woman, but this is the best Superman film since <laughs> yeah. 1978. I had that point stored up and as I well. can And I can only imagine, like, Henry Cavill watching this and going, why didn't you let me do that? <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Just the, you know, cause, cause Henry Cavill gets, gets so much right in terms of the performance, in terms of what he's allowed to do. And, you know, the character is, is presented in a suitably iconic way, but it's just not, it's just not the same as here. It's got none and of the substance. Yeah. 
Um, and as I say, and yeah, you're, I mean, you're right. The, you know, the, the whole thing and the thing that sets kind of DC and Marvel apart is that um, Marvel, uh, you know, th- there's there's more layers of complexity than this. But essentially, Marvel's characters are ordinary, relatable people who happen to have superpowers. Now, some of Marvel's characters are gods, and some of DC's characters are ordinary, relatable people who happen to have superpowers, because that's what happens when you have two competing comics <laughs> That's companies. what happens when one, <laughs> yeah, one becomes successful and they go, ooh, we'll have some of that. Yeah, but, but really, at its core, um, Marvel's superheroes are people, and DC's characters are icons or gods, yeah. and yeah that's this film gets that and it's and so while there are again i and and what i said after after seeing this was that i felt like um i I would still like to see dc do a movie that's as good as this but really feels dc-ish because i think again in terms of the portrayal of the lead character it does that in terms of everything else around it it felt more marvel than dc to me so i I would like to see this portrayal of wonder woman in a properly dc-ish movie because i don't feel that this was a properly dc-ish movie i did feel like this was a marvel movie (laughs) well that that might be justice league well, possibly. I mean, God. I mean, that was the. It was only like yesterday that I suddenly realised. Oh yeah, because I've been paying so little attention to Justice League. <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, we've got another film with this character coming out this year. This year, and yeah. all of us. If they can just take like an iota of what this film does and feed that into Justice League, um, then. And I'm not gonna, you know, given recent events, I'm not even gonna talk about the director of Justice League and feelings about his work and stuff. And it's like I'm. You know, I'm I'm feeling generous to to give the, the film the benefit of the doubt as much as possible. But um, yeah, I just really hope that this that just has a bit because even just a bit of this kind of thing would lift Justice League above what we thought it was going to be beforehand. <laughs> yeah, it, this this film though did almost make me retroactively like all of the other DC movies more <laughs> just for not being good. Like it was, it was almost like, oh, do you know what? The fact that DC haven't bottled what can be great about one of their characters on the screen yet in this, in this, uh, in the DCEU anyway, the fact, the re, the way that they haven't done that and then they have for Wonder Woman, it probably made the, made this film more, more of a revelation because they get the character so right and because it's a female character that they're getting that right with. And James, what James said is absolutely right. It feels fresh and different because this is a female character doing this stuff. And we haven't really seen that outside of like little bits of like Black Widow kicking ass in, in, um, I mean, I just, I really hope it sort of obliterates the idea that like female superheroes can't be done well because it's like, and not just superheroes, female-led big budget <laughs> movies, movies. Of any kind, yeah. Movies directed by women, movies with like with just female stars. It's it's a nonsense that it's taken us this long to get here. But the box office for this looks like it's it's going to be doing the kind of business that would make studios go, "Oh, hey, why haven't we been doing this already?" And then obviously the the critical response. Um, I mean. Hopefully this is enough to convince people out there that there is no inherent bias in film criticism towards who, <laughs> who the movies are made by. Because, do you know what? This is, this is just a great movie and critics have, re- have seen it and gone, yeah, this is great. Here are our positive reviews. And it should, it should 
like convince fans as well why that we why we need DC and Marvel films to both be good. You know, if we're if we're focusing on superhero movies specifically, DC are able to do something different from Marvel mm. because they have different characters in their in, you know in in their back pocket that they can do different stuff with. And if we are going to be getting like we are this year and like we are next year, six, seven, eight superhero movies coming out during the course of the year. We want, I want, we want films to be as different as Guardians of the Galaxy and Logan and Wonder Woman, which is what we've mm. got so far this year, and hopefully Thor Ragnarok and Justice League. Um, I, I just think this is, this, this film is a jolt in the arm to superhero cinema and to blockbuster cinema in general. And yeah, I don't think we can underestimate quite how important this film is, not just for what the, what the film industry does going forward in regards to female heroes, but just the fact that this first female superhero movie has knocked it out of the park in such a spectacular fashion and that there now can be kids who are watching Wonder Woman, you know, little boys and little girls looking at Wonder Woman and going, oh, wow, she's great. I want to be her. That's that's just a that's just a huge thing that has happened. And I'm so glad that this movie is good. Um I didn't expect it to be good, and um, <laughs> that's and, and, and not you know not not for any particular reasons. Well, just other because than like, DC yeah. haven't made good ones so far. The last three haven't been good, so why would this one be good? You know, you and, almost kind you almost kind of like ah, did DC have to get there first? Like, couldn't Marvel have like hurried up with with Captain Marvel or given Black Widow her own movie because they probably would have made a good one? Well, I mean, it's like there there are so many like female superheroes who I think are great and love comics about and Wonder Woman is not traditionally one of them <laughs> like when she shows up in things and like often when she shows up in team things and she she works quite well in a, in a team dynamic um, and, and that's fine and, you know, it's not that I've like never liked a comic with Wonder Woman in it but you look back through her history and there are flashes and there are moments of oh that was a you know really good or you know uh, but even like there's there's this particular Wonder Woman run which we'll come to in the recommendations and at the time that that came out even DC's own editorial were basically saying well look there haven't really been that many good Wonder Woman stories in the last 40 years but this one's different <laughs> you know it's like Wonder Woman is not a character who you can sit there and rattle off the great Wonder Woman stories um, and I think she has always suffered slightly from everyone kind of knows that she's the sort of foremost DC heroine, but no one's ever really known what to do with her. So the fact that, I mean, again, this is another way in which this film has done a marvel, really, in that it's gone, well, actually, this is what you do to make this character interesting. I mean, um, it's sort you know, of, I was going to say, it's kind of notable that, like, she's not just the foremost DC heroine, she's like the foremost heroine. Yeah, and like she's but one that's of almost a very all down well, to the TV she's one of a series. small number as well who who aren't derivative of male ones. Like Marvel yeah. don't really have a Wonder Woman equivalent. Yeah, like just historically, and so if you're going to do a good superhero a superheroine film, it kind of has to be with Wonder Woman because yeah. she's like the the first example and the best example. And the fact that she hasn't had great stories is kind of secondary to the fact that everyone knows who she is. I should, I think we should also point out as well. I, I mean, obviously this, it, it helps that this film was directed by a woman, but the, the way that Gal Gadot's character is such an incredible superhero, but never in any way sexualized. There's a, there's a romantic subplot in this film, but we, 
we never fetishize the gender of Wonder Woman, you know, like it, it never, it's never something that comes into play. And yes, I as a man watch this film and go, oh wow, look at Gal Gadot, she's stunning. And the character is, you know, is, is clearly, I mean, cause the, the film is constantly like this, there's a scene where she's like holding up a tank and she's got, you know, she's got like her biceps are bulging and the, and she's got like a, you know, she's, and she's in her full Wonder Woman costume and you're like, Wow, that's incredible. But I'm watching it going, what a superhero, not like, not like Vic Reeves in Shooting Stars rubbing my legs. <laughs> well, or that's anything. it. It, <laughs> you know, it manages to strike a balance. And yeah, I, I think so much of that is going to be down to it being, you know, Patty Jenkins behind the camera and not David Ayer. Um, I mean, it did, it but did, like, I did find it noticeable that even though she was walking around wearing very little, like all the characters were kind of attracted by her beauty and like they were looking at her face. It, it, because it, it sort of it's it's between sort of you know it's not ashamed to sort of put her in the costume and have her look like that like the the film doesn't sort of pretend that she doesn't look the way that she does and it also doesn't um like the you know the the conversation on the boat it sort of it initially looks like it's going in a direction of oh you know she's naive and innocent and comes from this island and you know doesn't know what sex is kind of thing and then actually kind of flips yeah. that but it, it you know it makes it part of her character but not in a skeevy way and yeah like the camera never it can put her up on screen you know for all of those sequences but it doesn't leer they it this film really shows you how much of that kind of thing is to do with choice of angles and choice of shots and that kind of thing and the um, jokes are at the expense almost of the characters who do sexualize her. Yeah. You know, um, there's, there's, there's some really funny guys in at least, in at least two or three scenes about that kind of stuff. Um, I was going to say, I want to talk about those, but that's venturing into spoiler territory. Yeah, so. def- definitely venturing into spoiler territory, which I think is probably a territory that we should start to explore a little bit more. Yes. Um, and by a little bit more, I mean, shall we end our spoiler free discussion <laughs> and move on into that? So yeah, if you haven't seen the film yet and you don't want to hear about specifics, um, I mean, what are you doing? Go out there and watch the film immediately because it's absolutely incredible. Um, but yeah, if you haven't, you can, you can pause the podcast here, go watch the film and come back and listen to our spoiler filled thoughts after you've seen the movie. So what we'll do now is we'll take a listen to the trailer for the movie and we'll be back with our spoiler filled discussion of Wonder Woman. Diana. Fighting does not make you a hero. What if I promise to be careful? Just a shield then. Diana. No sharp edges. Be careful of mankind, Diana. They do not deserve you. You've told me this story. What is this place? Who are you people? We are the bridge to a greater understanding. Right. What is your mission? Well, here's the thing. You are in more danger than you think. The boys in the trenches called her Dr. Poison. Millions would die. The war would never end. I'm going, Mother. If you choose to leave, you may never return. Who will I be if I stay? We'll come when you
to the war. Well, technically the war is that way, but we got to go this way first. How can a woman fight in this? Who is this young woman? She's my... Um... Diana, Princess of the Mystery. Prince, Diana Prince. If you believe that this war should stop, help me stop it right now. What are you? You will soon find out. Okay, spoiler section, you guys. Um, shall we? Shall we kind of start off with uh, the Firmaskira stuff? Because I think this film like firmly falls into like three sections. We got the we got the Paradise Island stuff at the start, and then we've got uh, a bit in London, and then we go actually out into the Western Front, and we we have kind of our big action sequence there, and then our final superhero battle at the end. Um, but I think we should start with the Firmaskira stuff because. Um, I, I was, I, we, we get to the scene at the end of Firmaskira where, uh, Gal Gadot and Chris Pine are on the boat and they're traveling to the world of men. And I kind of like, I let out a little sigh and I was like, oh, I really hope the movie doesn't like crater after this. I really hope that isn't the moment <laughs> where, the, where we like, we've crafted this incredible movie and then we have to go into the generic plot trudging through this and that and the other and that it's going to, fall down a notch no it um, does that in the third act instead but well i think <laughs> i think it i think it uh i think it gets a little bit shaky in the actual superhero action sequence but i mean i think it comes very late on the mm. the shaky bits and actually even in those shaky bits i think there's still some really really great yeah stuff. i mean but it, we'll doesn't, get to that. it doesn't yeah. lose anything until maybe 15 minutes before mm. the end and by that point i was fully on board <laughs> anyway so i think yeah. um i think with the um Themyscira stuff i i mean from looking at the trailers i did kind of get a sense of um i th- I, th- I kind of envisaged it as potentially being a bit like the krypton stuff in man of steel <laughs> sort of um you know we'll we'll have this stuff it's necessary setup but you know, let's face it, what we'll really want to get to is her getting out there in the world and, and being Wonder Woman kind of thing. Um, and, you know, so I not exa- I wasn't exactly dreading it or anything like that, but I did think if, if the film was going to be slow at any point, it would be during that stuff. When it came to it, with the point at which they left Themyscira, I was like, I really hope that they go back in some way before the end of the film. And I was annoyed that it didn't reoccur at all. It, it was really disappointing, like not to go back to Connie Nielsen and Robin Wright. <laughs> like, Robin Wright so. had been killed off at that point, but those two were so fantastic that it was a real shame that well, that, that whole strand of the plot ended as, as soon as she left. Like that whole sequence was great. Like my favorite action scene is the one on the beach, just because it's like it's like having an entire like army of Wonder Woman. <laughs> It, as an action sequence, thing. it's good, but that 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 scene does bring up um, the first instance of my biggest problem with the film. Yeah, um. <laughs> well, I think we should have our own section about the war as the setting. Yeah, because <laughs> there's a lot to say about that in lots of ways. Is is your problem that Wonder Woman is killing? No, not at all. Um, what, what's what's the issue? 
the issue is that um it is when they basically says look they're the bad guys um because it's world war 1 not world war 2 the film I, kind of seems to think it's in world war 2 the film but so world badly war 1 wants german to be... soldiers were not nazis like there were bad people involved in that war but they tended not to be the soldiers it's not world war 2 yeah they and, very and, and badly the, the german soldiers film... were kind of as much the victims as as the british soldiers were you know they the, did all badly the soldiers want the film in that to be war. set in world war 2 didn't they like yeah, you can tell from everything they do in it yeah like narratively and thematically the only reason it's not set in world war ii is because they were like because we've already nicked every beat from captain america we can't steal the setting too it's just it's not the same war and like other than that it does something in terms of you know with with the trenches and being kind of down on on the ground other than that it it doesn't feel to me like it has an understanding of what World War One actually was. And yeah, just that, that moment with, I mean, admittedly from his point of view, that is the case. But given that later on in the film, Steve has such an understanding and such a nuanced view of what's going on in the world and how, you know, it's, it's this big mess of a conflict with lots of different people with lots of different agendas and that kind of thing for him to turn up and go, they're the bad guys. And then the the Amazons. Now you know you can't blame the Amazons for defending themselves against a threat that's attacking them. But it just slightly seemed to take a slight sense of glee in. Hey, look, they're killing these German bad guys, and that made me feel uncomfortable. Yeah, I think that's fair because there was a couple of times during the film that I had to like remind myself that it was World War One. I. I think though, particularly earlier on, I think I think later on when it does get into that stuff about like. Hey, look, everyone's a bad guy and this is a flaw that's inherent to man and that there are occasionally going to be just evil bastards who, who kind of imprint their evil on the rest of people that we don't necessarily need a, a god of war pulling all the strings. I thought all that stuff later on and introducing that kind of nuance was nice. I think, yeah, I think you're right. I think that making the German soldiers generically evil early on, and I mean, like, in a sense, with when the scene, when she goes through No Man's Land, that's, I think that's a great sequence, but you're right, like, the fact that these German soldiers have taken over a, a, a village and are doing, like, horrible stuff there, it seems more World War Two than World mm. War One. I. I mean, it almost feels like the Saving Private Ryan situation. <laughs> um yeah, so I, I, I would agree with you there, but I do also think the film is trying to do in a similar way to Captain America, painting a narrative on top of a, com- a real world conflict. So it's almost like all of the Danny Houston, Ludendorff and Dr. Poison stuff. It's like, Hey, we, this was the real world that was going, real world stuff that's going on, but we're going to paint a new fictional level of generic evil on top of all of that. Um, and that's what our film's going to be focusing on because the film is trying to set itself in a version of the real world where World War One did happen and presumably all of the conflicts after that. Um, and so Diana has to kind of go in and influence events, but not in a way that would actually like conflict with history, if you know what I mean. So we have <laughs> to, we, we, we have to paint this narrative on top of it. And I think that's probably what the film is trying to do. But you're right. It does. It does at times. Other than some cool stuff with like No Man's Land and like more hand to hand combat kind of fighting, actual in the trenches kind of fighting feels like a film that would be more at home 
during a different conflict. <laughs> I mean, there is, there's some more stuff I want to say about that, but I think we should leave it until we get to that section because we haven't really talked about the characters and stuff yet. And I think, like, I have some, some stuff I want to say about, like, the big themes of Wonder Woman and what the actual villain of it is. But I think we need to leave that to the end. So we'll save that to the end. Yeah. Okay. So back to, so back to Femiskira. I, I just want to say, uh, like, I thought Connie Nielsen was fine. I thought Robin Wright as Antiope was just, <laughs> I was like, give me more of this character. She is the best. And Seb, you talked about that smirk that Wonder Woman gives during the battle sequence in, um, Batman v Superman. That That's smirk comes from, <laughs> she gets it from Robin Wright in this movie and you're like, oh, yes. I mean, that's, I, I liked, I, I mean, I like, I, I just like the general vibe in Femiscira. And I was reading Robbie Collins' review and he was like saying something like, you didn't realize how badly you needed to see like <laughs> golden armor clad Amazonian warrior princesses hanging sideways off horses at, <laughs> or, or like finding new ways to flip through the air and <laughs> like um, throw spears or fire arrows or just hand to hand fight. It's, there's so much in that first action. It, well, in, in all of the kind of training sequences where I was just like, wow, I haven't seen anything like that before. Well, like, That's par- really like cool. Paradise is the word, isn't it? Cause it's like, it's peaceful, but brutal. Like, there's no breaking it. Hmm. Like, what more can you say than other than you've never seen anything like it in a film? Like, superhero or otherwise. <laughs> it is so striking to have all of those female characters there and not, like, glimpse a man until, until Chris Pine turns up. And I was, I was really engaged with all the stuff that they were, that they were teaching that they were telling us and the world building that was going on in that sequence because um you know i was interested to find out more about this island when connie nielsen takes the time to tell the story of the history of the amazons and why they were created and all of the zeus and all that kind of stuff um that felt fresh and new and interesting it felt it felt different to anything we saw in like four or anything like that um and i wanted to hear those stories i actually thought that the the film, while it's kind of, it's, it's kind of doing it so that it can do a little aha kind of twist in the final <laughs> act. Not, which, a, not a very, uh, subtle one, was it? No, but I think, I think that you know, you absolutely know that the person they're setting up to be Aries isn't going to be Aries. But I, I would have, you know, I wouldn't have been surprised if any number of, like, four or five different characters were later revealed. Oh, sorry. Be. I thought, I thought the reveal you were setting up is when they were saying, like, Zeus forged a weapon and left it here. Oh, Here's, yeah. Here is this sword. <laughs> it's like, oh, yes, really? No. It's the sword, is it? Yeah, no. I think I think that was the that was the part that I definitely knew. Because <laughs> I, I was um, I went with my wife to watch this. My wife and um, <laughs> we uh, we were we were both saying like, yeah, we we she was we you knew she was the weapon, right? Yeah, absolutely. And but we both said. Oh, we, but we thought that maybe like Dr. Poison would be really, be revealed to be Ares at the end rather than, I mean, we're in the spoiler section. We just say it. David Fulis kind of out of, out of nowhere, really just turns up and you're <laughs> I, like, like, I had this really weird inkling early on. I was like, Oh, I think the British prime minister is being influenced by Ares. Like, I would never <laughs> have called that he was actually Ares. <laughs> hmm. like, I think he's not actually the prime minister, by the way, but no. Oh, is he not? No. Oh, okay. He's like, he's I just like assumed he was because he had a handlebar mustache. 
Yeah, but although I, I, I was amused to discover in the uh, closing credits that having having spotted James Cosmo, um, that his character was actually Field Marshal Haig, according to the credits. <laughs> <which Okay. I didn't. laughs> so basically, this film goes, Field Marshal Haig was a dick. Which, to be fair, Blackadder Goes Forth also did, but with um, Jeffrey... <laughs> Uh, I've forgotten his name. It's not important. <laughs> <laughs> Different podcast. Um, so yeah, anyway, that, yeah. that character. Like I assumed he was being influenced by Ares, but I would never have called him as Ares. Like my I thought they were gonna go for a thing like Ares died or Ares doesn't exist. Yes. Like he's yeah. you know, he's gone and his influence is mm. still living on. But hmm. yeah. I don't know. I, I I did kind of feel, especially given that they'd taken the time to develop a visual for the character, like, oh, she's going to fight Ares at the end. Then it did always seem like what it was building towards. But I, I just thought it was more. It wasn't that it was going to be a, a character. He was just going to turn up. <laughs> it wasn't. It yeah. wasn't going to be David Thewlis's head on a on a muscular body. That like that's With part of what's so great about it though, because <laughs> it's just yeah the bit where you see him like cast out of uh, yeah. like Olympus or whatever, and he's just this like buff guy with a really thin head and giant moustache. <laughs> You're like, okay. um, I think that's uh, that's another reason though why I think I forgave this movie the like the underwhelmingness of David Fulis in a in a superhero battle because it is when you when you've seen Calcutta's Wonder Woman be so kind of like incredible and all like powerful throughout the film in terms of everyone she comes into contact with and then you're like and now she's gonna fight David Fulis and you're like well um I think I know who's gonna win that one <laughs> I don't think I don't think I care about them fighting no, no matter what powers you give David Fulis and I think that's <laughs> they that did action, give him all it, the powers yeah and that action stuff is kind of the 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 least impressive the least successful of the action stuff in the film as well but again I don't think that I actually cared that it was underwhelming because what I was interested in in that final sequence was Gal Gadot's or Diana Prince's viewpoint, like what what was going through her head like mm-hmm. emotionally. I didn't I didn't really care about the fight and because I think that they actually got the Chris Pine stuff in the final act really right, that that kind of stuff was satisfying me on a kind of like action and excitement level and every time we cut back to Wonder Woman, I was just interested in her and where she was emotionally rather than the actual yeah, well, that's like, CGI fightiness of it. The thing that makes this a good Superman film is that in the end she doesn't like defeat him by punching him. It's like the fact that she has this kind of love for humanity that hmm. makes her stronger than him. Like that's I don't understand why they haven't or like like that's what I wanted Man of Steel to do and what it <laughs> failed so completely to get about Superman. Like and it's, it's what the, I love about Grant Morrison's Superman as well, is that they dramatise that in the story. It, and it's not just that the character has a love for humanity, is it? It's that she has a love for the world and everything in it. And she mm-hmm. has she she has a a kind of a calling to fight any kind of injustice. Yeah. And what she sees in the final act is people who are flawed that only that to like what Ares is telling her is correct. That all that mankind needs or doesn't even really need anymore is a prod in that direction. They're looking for that. They've got that. There is that propensity for evil and for 
you know, and, and, and for war within humanity to begin with. And all she has to say is, well, I acknowledge that flaw. And, but that doesn't, that yeah, doesn't it's, make it's, humanity I mean, not worthwhile. The, the, the line about, you know, um, about humanity not deserving her, which obviously is, I think is going to be one of the big takeaways from the film, especially with the, um, the comparison to the, the line from the Dark Knight that, that you paraphrased <laughs> in your review. Um, yeah. the point is humanity doesn't necessarily deserve right now a hero like her, but that doesn't matter to her. She, it, it's got her anyway. The point is you, you might not deserve me, but you've got me anyway. Um, and yeah, that's, and that's I, you know, the core of it's, it's the belief that, people could deserve her and it's it's the belief in the capacity for good that hmm. that superheroes like that. Well, it's, have, what, it's like know. good isn't isn't like handed out on I'm trying to Yeah. Try and not <laughs> use the phrase tit for tat because connotations. <laughs> no but it's but it's yeah, it's it's a you you don't you don't have to earn the right to be looked after. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Like it, it's the right thing to do and that's why it's done. Like that's it. That's all. <laughs> Yeah. Although I do, I, I get the impression that I think the film definitely ends on a note of that Diana probably after this film goes back to kind of, she, she stays in the world of men. She stays living there. I'm not sure that she is like actively Wonder Woman throughout all the rest of the conflicts. Well, I'm not, I'm not sure we're going to get a movie where Diana is intervening in World War Two. Yeah. And I think that's because she acknowledges that, that mankind kind of is mankind and they're going to, do bad things but she she doesn't necessarily have to step in at every occasion and do something about it because there is only so much she can do she can't influence politics she can turn up and kind of win a fight but she can't she can't stop a conflict from taking place you know so like her, her powers are limited but she you know she 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 certainly doesn't think that we aren't worth saving. It's just that she acknowledges when that saving can be done. There, there is a bit of a structural problem in inserting a, a retroactive character like this. And obviously, with with Marvel, it's okay with Captain America because he disappears for seventy years. But you know, I, I don't think that the films are going to fill in what she does in between World War One and the events of Batman v Superman because it's already being discussed that it'll likely the next one will likely be a contemporary setting. You know, we're not mm. going to have her hopping through the decades in subsequent films. There is a slight question though of if she spent you know eighty. 90 odd years feeling that she wasn't needed and just, you know, learning more about the world, then turning up when she felt she was needed in the doomsday situation. Where was she when General Zod turned up? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, that's like, that's like one of those questions like, why doesn't, you know, why doesn't Tony Stark call the rest of the Avengers during Iron Man 3 and stuff? And like, I think it's just, oh, no, I know, I know. you've just, you've I know, just, got I know, to... I know what the reason is. The reason is that, you know, this film wasn't in the minds of them, of them when they made Man of Steel. It does kind of make it slightly easier to, um, forget the existence of Man of Steel. I do, despite her appearance <laughs> in Batman v Superman, I do kind of just want to pretend that the DCEU starts with this film. It's like, this is a fresh start. <laughs> We're building from here. Justice League is a follow-up to this, not to Batman v Superman. Yeah, I mean, it, it, and it, this also does feel like the kind of film that you would want to kick off a shared universe with you know mm. smash it out of the park the tone well it's the, yeah the the, the, the the principles and the tone of this film are the kind of thing that you should be wanting to build a superhero universe slash franchise around 
and not the principles of Man of Steel. Hmm. Anyway, let's, um, let, let, let's 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 call that the end of all our obligatory digs at, at Man of Steel. Yeah. <laughs> but it did. I mean, <laughs> actually, this 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 actually got me more interested for Justice League because in terms of the world building and talking about, I mean, I love the way that they really like leaned into the Greek pantheon stuff, like the mm-hmm. fact that yeah, she, like all that she is, <laughs> yeah, and I and I, I liked I liked the way that they. Um, staggered out the, the kind of reveal of who she was and the reveal of how she came to be and what her parentage actually was because, um, like I liked the way that her mum told her the story but left some blanks to be filled in because it kept me intrigued on that kind of stuff for the rest of the film. And I think it's going to be interesting for future DC films because I think Zeus is probably a character who we will see. Um, especially because we know that there's like a big action set piece at the start of Justice League, which is like the Amazonians and the Atlanteans and like the early man fighting off the like parademons of apocalypse in at, at the start of that film. And I, I kind of, I'm intrigued to see a bit more of the history of the, of the Amazons in that. Um, and I'm intrigued that this is now a world where there are aliens and kind of monsters coming from elsewhere, but yet there's also this kind of like mythic, this, this mythology to earth as well, that like <laughs> well, the Greek gods were real and there is a god literally living amongst us. That's something I quite liked is when they were showing the Amazonian slash Olympian god stuff, they were like, they didn't do the Thor thing of like, uh, it's science, but really advanced science. They were just like, yeah, yeah we made you out of clay and you're a god. Yeah. Which again, I mean, that, that is the DC way of doing things. Yeah, again, because you know, it's, it, in, in DC, and it was kind of Sandman that probably made this canonical, all theologies are true. Basically, all the gods <laughs> that anyone's ever believed in basically existed at some point. I mean, the thing is, Marvel, like, Marvel's take tends to be, like, the Marvel Universe is the real world, and there are fantastical things in it, but generally we don't try to deviate too much, and that really mm. carried over hard in the films, in that, like, even, Doctor Strange, like it's all underpinned with like this very rational system of thought. It's kind of it's 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 yeah. With Doctor Strange, it's not even magic so much as it's manipulation of dimensions, isn't it? It's yeah, sort of, like there's yeah. a very science like, and even like yeah, you can open a gateway, but you need this artifact that has the ability to open a gateway. Like <laughs> yeah. you know, it it's all rational and makes sense. Whereas in in the DC universe, they they're able to be a bit broader with their mythologies and stories, and they kind of they've brought that into the films. Like in, we said in Batman v Superman, it felt very DC because they just like chucked everything in there. And I think Wonder Woman gets away with more than the Marvel film could have for that reason. Like if they, you know, if they if Marvel had made this film, Wonder Woman would have been half human at least. <laughs> Like that's my take. <laughs> that's my feeling about it. Hmm. Whereas Warner, we're happy to just go sort of big on the mythology of it. Yeah. So she she is literally Zeus's daughter. Like there's there's no like allegory or anything like that. It's like yeah. and, you know Zeus isn't you know someone who was worshipped as a god but wasn't a god. She is literally <laughs> the daughter of <laughs> Zeus. And hmm. Yeah. Um. And I I I mean I talked about uh Antiope being great, but what what. I mean, Seb, you said Connie Nielsen was great as Hippolyta. I didn't think she was quite Robin Wright good. Um, no, but, but I, I, did... I think the pair of them were really, you know... Um, I, I'm Speaking of Robin Wright, actually, I was going to mention this earlier, but I, I liked a, a tweet I saw the other day of um, 
a picture of Robin Wright riding <laughs> a horse in this and a picture of her riding a horse in The Princess Bride. Yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> it's quite a contrast. I just, I want to know how she got their scars, because that looks like some really cool stuff happened off screen. Yeah. Well, there were, well, yeah, like, like little say, things like that. There was, there, there seemed like a bit of care put into, like, there was, there was thought in the, and, and the, even the sort of, you know, the, the relationship between Hippolyta and Antiope, um, it had been thought about, even if it's never going to be explained or seen on screen. You know, they, they didn't just appear out of nowhere. It felt like that world and that society, uh, and that setup had thought into it. And so that means that sort of what you were talking about, you know, feeling like you, you knew who the character was from, from those early scenes with her as, as a child mm. and as a teenager. Uh, I think it's because it's able to hit the ground running with that stuff. And it, it, it feels like a lived in world. Yeah. I mean, I'd contrast it to, um, Asgard in the first Thor movie where you, you kind of feel like, you kind of feel like Asgard is like this one bridge and a palace at the end of it. It doesn't <laughs> it's feel, all the vision, it doesn't, isn't it? yeah. Whereas this, I mean, like even from the first scene where the really young Diana's running around through the mosquito and you, it feels like a lived in world. The characters feel real. They feel like they have a history. Um, this, this place feels fully established. You almost kind of get like what the vibe is from like a, a leadership point of view, but also what it would be like just to exist as kind of an, you know, your average Amazonian walking around living their day to day. Um, and, and also the fun of just having like Diana being the only child to begin with as mm-hmm. well is, is really fun. Um, I like to, yeah, actually, I, in, in, the, in terms of that, that building of stuff and things having a history, I mean, it, that even kind of extends, um, there's, there was a little detail I liked with Steve where obviously, you know, he introduces Steve and he's, uh, I mean, Obviously, that you know the classic thing with Steve is that he's a he's a pilot, and in this, it's sort of he's a he's a pi- he's he was a pilot and has become a spy, and he has got this kind of history to him. I really liked at the very end um, when it showed the photo of him, and that was obviously a photo of a much younger Steve when he was just in like when he was just a pilot kind of thing, you know, sort of before he he then gone off and you know mm-hmm. become a spy i quite liked that it was sort of oh yeah you know there's a bit of background to him and again they thought about what <laughs> that he was... did before he turned up in the film what i liked one thing i liked about the ending like aside from it being like my second favorite superhero film where a character called steve like flies a plane to, <laughs> <laughs> to save the major cities of the world yeah um <laughs> like i liked that his big hero moment was well i i can fly this plane because that's who he is he's a pilot Hmm. I mean, in terms of, I mean, we were, we were chatting about this before the film, uh, before the, before we uh, recorded about like, um, about how Steve Trevor doesn't really have an arc in this film, but like, when he's talking about himself and when he's talking about his view of the world and when he's talking about his history and his family and anything, what you get a sense of is a character who has already had his character arc. Yeah, he's, he's had his character arc before he gets into this. And so his arc in this film is a romantic one. Um, and, and that's about it. And so his character in this film does exist as, uh, as almost a device to make our hero more interesting. Um, but like I said, this is the way that I think that love interests should be handled more often because during that final scene, when he does have something to do and what he has to do is important, 
but it's not the most important thing because what Wonder Woman's doing is the most important thing. But what he's doing does have real world consequences. Um, and I, I mean, I was, I was thinking like, if this was a female character, would you say that, she, that that character was being fridged at the end? And I, I was thinking, no, you wouldn't because what Steve Trevor does is when, when he flies up in the plane and sacrifices himself, um, to, to save everyone else. Um, what he's doing is, yes, it's motivating Diana, but it's also serving a function for him as a character. It's giving him an emotional ending to his story. It's giving, it, it feels true to that character and he's not doing it purely for Diana. In fact, he's, he's kind of not. So yeah, it does serve as motivation for our hero. Um, but it, it functions on a whole bunch of other levels mm-hmm. as well. And that's what I, that's what I say. It's, it's a shame that superhero movies don't do this. But because if this was a female character, you'd go, Oh, this is one of this, you know, this is finally a movie that does its, its love interest, its female lead right. Um, it's just yeah, a I, shame that it's the one I, with the man in that role that manages to I do it. I contrast it. You kind of, you kind of want to see Patty Jenkins direct a male led superhero movie so she can smash the female love interest <laughs> out of the park. Do you know what I mean? That like, would be I great. kind of, I, in so many ways, you can compare this film to Captain America 1. But for me, like, it's very stark in the, in the final sequence of Captain America 1, Peggy is sitting behind a microphone shouting. Yeah. Like, that's her thing, is going like, Steve, Steve! Whereas in this, like, he's in I the mean, plane, I, like, while I, Wonder Woman's are fighting, like, they're both doing stuff. Yeah, I mean, we all know how much I love Peggy Carter and how much I love the romance between Steve and Peggy in that film. But in every possible aspect, the Steve Trevor, Diana Prince relationship and the the way that Steve Trevor functions in this plot is superior to the way that Peggy Carter's handled in The First Avenger. She disappears for half of the film. She comes back. We're told that she is, you know, this... Um, we <laughs> get, like, little hints at how good she is at what she does. But it's not crucial to the plot. She's an adjunct to it. And... I just yeah. want to. I just want to like mark this moment as being the moment where, on record, Joe was <laughs> negative about Peggy Carter. In I'm not negative about Peggy Carter. I'm just like this is better. <laughs> this, is, this is just better. What you're saying is um, you prefer Steve Trevor to Peggy Carter. Yeah, absolutely. That's what I'm saying. Um, on record. We should. <laughs> we should we'll, talk we'll more about Steve Trevor. Know. She'll be very disappointed in you, Joe. <laughs> well, as long as you like Chris Pine now as well. That's fine. <laughs> um, because. Yeah, let's let's talk about his introductory scenes in Fimiskira and I mean the bathtub scene is just an is all time <laughs> great scene as far as I'm concerned. I was like I was in hysterics. I, I was <laughs> like this film has been quite quite serious and quite like you know, play playing the playing the first acts with a straight bat of like here is this here is this world of very serious women and serious debates about, you know, like, what should we let Diana know and how should we train her and what, how should we approach everything? And now a man's turned up and there's, uh, and there's, and, and there's action and there's killing. <laughs> and, and then, and then there's, and then there's, yeah, there's a knob gag. <laughs> and it's like, that scene's wonderful. First, because it is Patty Jenkins going, Hey, let's have a look at this beautiful naked man. And that's fun and that's refreshing. And literally the way that she shoots it as well with him literally stood just 
hand cupping himself to <laughs> to maintain a degree of modesty. Yet the above average. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Joke was... I love, like, I love all the moments where Steve Trevor gets petty, where he's like, you know, I'm, you know, I'm not average, I'm above average. <laughs> like, it's all, I love that stuff. It's kind of, it's very Joss Whedon thing. Which is yeah. that take your take your like grand characters and make them as petty as you can get away with. But also, you know, when you were saying that, I I believed him. I mean, because I'm looking at him and I'm going, yeah, <laughs> well, Chris, yeah, obviously, you, you're Chris Pine. You are above average. <laughs> <laughs> but like, but just him being keen to let people know that is is very funny. Yeah. Also, like, yeah, it's it's interesting in a kind of like it's it's funny. But it's not like quips. It's like his insecurity, like it's character comedy. And I think yeah. all the, yeah, one of the things I really, joke. yeah. One of yeah. the things I really liked about Wonder Woman is that it was very sort of like, re- again, refreshing to watch a film that it being funny, but not being like, here's, here's a rug here's pull joke. joke to, to, and like it was the opposite of Doctor Strange, which had like, Doctor Strange did an emotional yeah. moment and then stuck a one-liner on the end of it to remind you that it was a funny movie. Whereas this film made the emotional stuff funny. None of, none of the humour in this movie is forced. Like, yeah, it, it doesn't feel like, like someone went through the script and was like, let's add a joke on the end of this scene. Like, no, it's all funny in itself. Well, similarly, it, I mean, um, uh, Lucy Davis, like a lot of the humor in that character is as much how it's played as the lines. It's, mm-hmm. it's her sort of, her, her awkward sort of, um, <laughs> Miranda Hart performance. Yeah, it is a bit of a Miranda Hart performance, but it's funny, you know, and, and yeah, 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 that sort of, you know, that, that bumbling, bustling stuff works really, really well. And obviously, oh, I mean, she's counterpoint. <laughs> obviously obviously this is you know where she did her finest work but it's it's a very ricky gervais-esque performance as well i thought like in it down down to the mannerisms like in a way that she wasn't in the office like in the office she felt like a real person opposite this cartoon of a man in david brent at at times anyway but here she felt like she was doing that she had some of the the ricky gervais mannerisms and the and yeah, the the kind of the cringe comedy uh, at times. But yeah, she's she's really fun as I, well. I, I like um, the way I like the gag of, um, and this is more I think more a, a joke that the film's making. But um, that you know they consider it far too conspicuous um, for Diana to walk down the street carrying the sword and shield. So their solution is to hand it over to Etta <laughs> yeah. and have her walk down the street with them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I I thought the I thought the humor was really well handled. We talk about the the 
the bathtub scene, but then similarly on the boat, which we mentioned as well, the the stuff about about the Amazons concluding that they men don't, are unnecessary, they, yeah. Men are, men are unnecessary when it comes to pleasure. Yeah, I thought it was <laughs> I thought it was a, a really funny gag. Just uh, the way the way they were playing with it, and I think the way that this film never. Uh, again, the contrast would be I'm going to say more negative things about Agent Carter, but the TV show Agent Carter, particularly the first season when it's going, hey, female emp- empowerment, like women, you can be awesome, but like and like, look at how horrible the world of like the the world of men and misogyny and the way that women are treated. It's very on the nose and it's absolutely hammering you over the head about it. This film, I think, has lots of like subtle flourishes of. Yeah, we're making a feminist movie, but we're not shouting about it. We're just letting what we're doing stand for itself. And the, I think the in, thing about it, um, that that gag is that I think it was like calculated to annoy exactly the kind of <laughs> dickhead who would buy a ticket to an all female screening, and yes, it worked yeah. because I have actually seen that. I don't know which review it was, but there was a review that referenced that line and said it confusingly says this and it's like well done you've <laughs> just made yourself part of the joke you have become <laughs> the punchline to that joke wow <laughs> um i should i should i should also point out um back to that bathtub scene i um i appreciated chris pine being in that state of undressed and of undress and not pumped up to the size of a chris hemsworth or a or a chris evans or even um, <laughs> a Chris Pratt. Like, of all the Chris's, he's the least inflated. Um, and finally, and an attainably non-buff role model. I mean, still not attainable. I, was say, <laughs> yes. I wouldn't quite get that. <laughs> I was joking. Yeah. If if I can ever look like Chris Pine looks in this movie, I will be um, over the moon. Um, or you need I, a six yeah. months and a personal trainer and no job. Yeah, possibly. But then I'll still <laughs> never have, I'll still never have Chris Pine's eyes, those dreamy, dreamy blue <laughs> eyes. There's, um, the, the film Hell or High Water that actually Michael Leader recommended when he came on the podcast, uh, is hilarious because the opening scene is a bank heist scene with Chris Pine where he's wearing a balaclava and you're like, but I can see his eyes. It's Chris <laughs> Pine. It couldn't be anyone but Chris Pine because those eyes. Um, yeah. Uh, so, well, I think we've done a lot, a lot of the Steve Trevor stuff there. Um, as an, uh, as a side to that, the introduction again of his kind of, his friends that they're going to be going into battle oh, with. Oh, you mean the Howlin' um, Mercenaries? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Who I think got the right amount of focus in this film. Like, they were there when they needed to be and they were recognizable faces. Um, I think more so than, I mean, like, you remember Dum Dum Dugan in the first Avenger, but apart from it, and even he doesn't have, like, I mean, you're, you're mainly moments. remembering the visual, aren't you? Yeah, you remember him yeah. because he's Dum Dum Dugan and he's got the, yeah. the hat and the mustache. Yeah, no, I, I, I think they're, they're more successful in terms of being part of the story, in terms of being memorable characters. And as you say, in terms of being people you recognize because one of them's you and Bremner. Um, I, I think they are a more successful version of the Howling Commandos, but mm. let's not beat about the bush. That is literally what they are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I think my favorite was, um, I, I'm going to butcher his name, but Saeed Tagmawi, who's yeah. a, a fantastic actor who, you know, like, you've probably seen him be great in a bunch of stuff. And I liked him here just as, like, comic relief, 
Um, but, um, like a man who, like, at the same time, you, you believed had a, like, a, just an inbuilt integrity. And again, felt like a character with all of his languages and stuff who was, you know, worldly and kind of impressive in his own right and the kind of guy that you'd want to be taking into this battle with you. But the way he's introduced with, like, he is basically the first proper audience surrogate of, like, Oh wow! Look at you. You are impressive. And what what is it he says? I'm both terrified and aroused right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's just absolutely perfect. And that's the closest that the film gets to sexualizing her. But it's still a character who's like, wow, you are attractive. But ultimately, I'm just more impressed with you as a, a you know as a hero. It's the, it's, it's the it's the it's the acknowledgement of being sort of completely beneath her level, isn't it? Yes. And when she goes one language further than him in that little fun banterous <laughs> exchange, like it's great because the the film is constantly presenting people to Diana who have skills or have perspectives that are outside her own. But every time you kind of get to a point, you're like, yeah, but she's better. <laughs> she's, she's always going to be the best of us in this movie. Um, and, and that's what I really liked. Um, the chief character, I, um, I understand why he's there, uh, Americans. in terms of, well, in terms of a plot function or in terms of that function of the way that Diana is discovering our world and, where he says something like my people have been have all been killed and she says who did it and he's like his people like yeah, yeah. it's, like, it's a crucial yeah. moment of understanding about humanity for her is mm. that even the good guys are bad guys sometimes and but yeah. but also that i think that he you know he doesn't sit there hating chris pine because mm. you know it's sort of mm. yeah yeah I still think that I, I, I did wonder whether having that Native American character there just to serve that, that function basically, because otherwise he's not, he's not a character that has that much about him. He, he's like the, the thing that you remember about that character is, oh, he's the, he's the Native American character. There's yeah, not, yeah, fair point. There's not much beyond that. And to be fair, like I think, I think Ewan Bremner's character comes out of it being, you remember him because he's Ewan Bremner and being ostensibly and ostentatiously Scottish. Um, I also remember him because I read a review that said his character was Irish. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, and yeah, because he, he does ultimately prove very, very useless in terms of what he contributes. <laughs> yeah, he's and the, the moment where Wonder Woman's like, it's like, no, you can sing for us. And it's a really, it's a really sweet character moment, but it also shines a light on how useless he has been in this narrative. I mean, I did, I can't, there was that point where I was like, oh, he's going to overcome his, his fear and like make the shot. And he doesn't <laughs> like, she just does it for him. Yeah. 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 Um, I think that might be a good point to talk about some of the action sequences in the movie. We talked about the, the opening one with the Amazonians and, and how kind of, I think just how cool they are watching them in action and all of the stuff that Patty Jenkins does with, does with them visually that, that feels different and fresh and exciting and makes that, makes all the opening well, just, the mysterious I, stuff. A point I want to make about that one then is that, like, I kind of enjoyed how, even as cool as they were, like guys turn up with guns and they're basically as strong as they are. Like it's yeah. an interesting point to make about sort of weaponry and 
if nothing else, it's a kind of World War One appropriate thing, which is that it's like the dawn of sort of automatic new, weapons and new uh, warfare. And it's like, who, ah, who was it? I remember in history, like being told that there were countries going against tanks with like cavalry at the time, like guys with swords on horseback, because it was just that much of a mismatch. Uh, and like, I think that's kind of, it's thematically appropriate in, in this film to show like how devastating guns can be when you have them on a sort of industrialized military scale. And, and, and then that's very well handled because it's kind of like the thing that gives the guns any power against the Amazonians is that element of surprise that they don't know what they are and they don't know what they can do. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what leads to the couple of casualties that the Amazonians do suffer. Uh, But then, yeah, once the Amazonians actually figure out what's going on, they use their shields and they use their, uh, and they use their like, well, like it also cre- creative combat methods to it, overcome them. It sort of sets up the this idea that deflecting bullets is actually a, a thing that a you thing can do that in this world. Do. Well, and like specifically, it's Wonder Woman's superpower is that like she she can beat bullets, and like bullets are the ultimate cause of harm. Hmm. Like it's, it's something I like about the character is that they. Because, like, action films especially, like, I don't know if this is our perspective as Brits, but, like, they're so gun-happy. Like, and they treat it very blasé. Like, you rarely see in films anything that sort of adequately represents how dangerous guns are and how, like, deadly they can be. And, like I said, I don't know if it's just because Americans are so familiar with them or, like, they have this kind of fetishization of guns. But then for this film to come along and be like, well, look, this is how dangerous bullets are and... But if she's a superhero, she can beat them. Like, yeah, it, I mean, I it's think, a thing I, I enjoy. I think particularly American action cinema definitely yeah, does yeah. fetishize guns in that way. Um, and it, it did make you think, well, if uh, Batman and Wonder Woman ever have a fight, especially especially the DCEU version of Bat- uh, Batman, uh, I think Wonder Woman's going to come out on top. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but then I think that segues nicely into that big No Man's Land battle, because that, I think... Of all of the iconic hero shots in this film, the scene when she emerges up from the trench into into No Man's Land and kind of slowly works her way down there is... Like, I was literally, like, drawing breath watching that going, oh, wow, this is... Yeah, this is incredible. And from the moment she steps up there as well, you are like, yeah, she's going to be fine. She's and And I just want to watch how she does it. And it's, yeah... Uh, I I mm-hmm. I loved that I loved that action sequence from the Mo- No Man's Land stuff. Obviously, from the like, No Man's Land is such a perfect area for a fight to take place in a Wonder Woman movie. Um, <laughs> that, that that irony was not lost. Yeah. And, no man can go and then, there, but there's one woman can. And then to and then to take that through to the village, and there are there are moments in that village fight sequence which are which are fun and impressive, but the the moment that made me go, and I've done this, this is not something that's unique to Wonder Woman. This is just occasionally in a big action movie or a superhero movie. And I think the times where I've done it most recently are probably like John Wick, where something happens and I'm just like, oh, wow, no, that was cool. That was just cool. The moment when she, like, there's the last guy in yeah. that room after <laughs> she's taken everyone down and she just looks at him and just, like, thrusts her shield, like, flies forward and fi- sends him through the wall. And I was just like, 
Oh wow! That's funny. Is that that's that's not entirely dissimilar to something that Superman does very early on in Batman v Superman with the <laughs> guy who's holding Lois hostage, and yet the feel of those two moments like could not be aside from the fact that they're both in DC movies and they're both shot with that blue filter, which is maybe my, the only concession that this film has to being in the dceu <laughs> by the way um but they could not feel more different in terms of what's happening at that moment and whether or not it feels like a triumphant moment or whether it makes you go well it's because like in that in that scene like superman feels like vengeful doesn't he mm. like he's it feels like he's angry and that he's taking it out on that guy whereas in this it's the opposite like she's there to save people yeah, like where a Superman is more like you. You touch my woman, I'm gonna fuck you up. Because <laughs> which, is, which is a classic Superman character. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because she is as as you said at the start, James. She's driven by love the whole way through. Like that is her. That's her like defining motivation is that she just has this love for the world around her. And when she hears about things that are wrong and people being hurt, she just has an innate desire to go and fix that. And I think. We talked about how people had been criticizing this film for being cheesy. And it's not, is it? It's just sincere the mm-hmm. whole way through. It's just really sincere about its lead character's intentions. And that makes the hero moment feel all the more heroic. And I think there's only one moment in this film where Dan is doing something and you're not inherently like, yes, that is the right thing to do. That's awesome. That's great. And that's when, that's during the scene where she kills Danny Houston. Because we all know he's not Ares. And because it feels driven by something that maybe is slightly personal, even if it is a desire to end the war, this Ares thing, like she knows Ares is the person who killed all the rest of the gods and he's the one that's orchestrating all of this. Mm -hmm. And she wants to personally take him out. She sees him as this, the embodiment of the evil of the war that's around her. Right. And I think, that's the that's the only moment in the film when she does kill him, where you as an audience member are going, I, I, I'm not fully, I'm not punching the air for what Wonder Woman just did. Like, I genuinely, I mean, it's interesting, because like, I genuinely thought because of that, he was going to come back and then he was going to have his like hubristic moment of defeating himself or whatever, because like, that's the convention. But like, also, I wonder if maybe that's, that was sort of an intentional point, which is the, like, yeah. Patty Jenkins saying, well, like, killing people doesn't actually solve problems like you're not supposed to feel good about it no i think that's i think that's absolutely the case i've seen criticism of the setting because like because it wasn't as black and white a war as world war ii or whatever Hmm. but i think i think the film does just about enough to keep me on side with that because like there's like there are all these parts in the film where you get like glimpses of it as a kind of like broadly anti-war statement because like everything they do is about ending the war and like the idea that war is not a natural state for humanity and they put in all these little beats which are like things like the mercenaries like the guy's not a fighter he's a singer and you know he's not a not a fighter he's an actor and stuff and like they're after at the end when they've killed Ares um and like the German soldiers take off their masks and they're like just kids like they're really young and you kind of get the sense of like oh you know this 
war is a terrible thing and like killing one person isn't necessarily going to end it but but like everything we do should be to avoid this situation happening again and like kind of the problem with it being world war one for me is that there's this unspoken thing of and 30 years later or happens again even worse but I think the film yeah, itself a- has so much like humanity and like empathy for war and the people involved in war. Like even Dr. Poison is like this kind of scarred and fucked up person who's been like twisted by her inner evil. Hmm. Like I wish they'd done more with her, but it does seem like she's kind of a damaged person rather than a horrible person in a very yeah, specific get- way. Again, I think you can probably, like, all of the actual German soldiers who we see in this film are kind of connected to Ludendorff and to Dr. Poison. Yeah, so the ones, yeah. the ones pursuing Steve Trevor at the start are the ones who have pursued him from him stealing the book mm-hmm. from, from Dr. Poison. And the ones that come after them in London are sent by Ludendorff. And then, we obviously we see all of the evil that he does and then i don't know that the village might be the exception but i guess they're so close to where ludendorff is that they could be his yeah i mean it's and and that's and that's specifically the village that he fires upon so it's like i say i do feel like there is a degree of painting on top of the conflict painting this level of fictional evil onto a real conflict they do separate ludendorff from the other soldiers as well by having him kill all the other leaders yeah, and this and this is a war that w- that is presented as you know it is literally days away from ending, mm-hmm. and the only thing that's prolonging it is this: are these fictional characters who we've inserted into it? Yeah, and 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 the notion of Ares that like the specter of Ares that hangs over the film. So I, I, I'm basically Seb. I think what I'm saying is I'm willing to buy your argument there that it does make things a little bit uncomfortable, but I think the movie has thought about it and has tried to uh, and maybe isn't yeah I, maybe isn't saying I mean, it, what, the thing is it's so clearly it's so clearly it. wishes it was world war Two, and like they've tried to hammer it in that i think maybe they it does it does feel a little bit like uh the the classic uh sylvester stallone film driven um <laughs> which is about indycar racing but was originally written as being based around f1 uh, but when they couldn't get the rights to make the film around F1, they made it around IndyCar instead. But the script and the plot are still as if it's an F1 World Championship and just happens to have been filmed using IndyCars. And <laughs> that does feel this does feel in places like uh, yeah, it's 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 thematically more about World War Two than it is about World War. I. Yeah, because like there are some nice moments. Like I really enjoy the kind of you know the Victorian sort of grappling with this sort of horrible meat grinder that's descended on their continent. Mm. But Mm -hmm. like if, if she had been killing Ares at the end of world war two and saying, that's it, no more war, you could sort of believe it because warfare changed after that Mm. to a large extent. Like there wasn't another world war in the way that world war one and two were similar. I mean, the, the thing I think it does well is that it, it puts a lot of emphasis on, this war is being continued by the leaders, like by having Ludendorff and then having Ares turn out to be the British leader and stuff. It's like, it's kind of, they, they emphasize that it's a few people, not all people who are doing this. 
Yeah, it's like I said, I think the stuff is there. I just, I, I agree with Seb that I think maybe on a first watch, some of that stuff can come off as uncomfortable. Um, because, because it, it is a little bit. Um, but I think, I think the film is definitely trying to differentiate that, even if it's not, um, entirely successful. Uh, what I would say with the World War One setting is I think that they visually realize it really well. Mm. Um, I thought, I thought the production design of, I mean, first of all, the Fermascara is incredible, but then I think London looks great. I think the, the trenches and the no man's land sequence looks great. I think the French village looks great. Um, I even think just having, having that big castle at the end was fun just for the fact that it was a, <laughs> it, it, it was a big castle where they could have a, where they could have a little bit of a, a ball and then, and, and a, an action sequence. But yeah, I, I just thought it all looked, Gorgeous. I mean, the the shot when they're first walking into like 1918 London, and I was like, "Oh, that is recognisably <laughs> London, but not as we know." I mean, it. Do you I, know what I mean, I was like, watching that in London, and like, I like it got me right in my chest because I was like, "This is it's the place I uh, love." But just that's the city yeah. I recognise. Yeah, yeah. Like it was really, even though kind of. Like you say, it was pre World War Two London, so most of that stuff you assume would have been bombed flat a few years also, later. Also, they do uh, they do criticise it when they arrive. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. not for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and I also I love the scene in the pub. Like the the pub looked like a Westminster pub. Mm-hmm. Like it it looks. I was I was watching. It, I was like, oh, are they filming this in the Chandos? Because I, it absolutely yeah. could have been. <laughs> yeah, it's those panels. It's the it's the, yeah. the wood and, and the glass panels. glass panels that that yeah. Yeah, give it the right. Yeah, feel. there's there's it's like a niche 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 reference for our central London drinking listeners. <laughs> but it's just there's an attention to detail there that would have been very easy to resort to shorthand or something. Hmm. I really, I really, in fact, really enjoyed the London sequences as in general because I am, I am going to be slightly critical though of them um, walking all the way from um, where they arrive, which I think is near St Paul's, to Selfridges. Like they could have found a clothes shop closer than that. That's a bit of a long walk. <laughs> uh, Sorry, not, 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 wor- not worthy of Diana. They couldn't. Um, I'm just sad they didn't have a scene on the tube like in Thor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in in terms of London geography niggles, this one definitely low <laughs> it's down not the a list. Thornington Crescent, yeah. No, um, but yeah, I really I, I enjoyed the continuation of the like because the chemistry between Pine and Godot is so good that like any second the two of them are on screen together, whether they're doing the kind of romantic bantering or whether they're doing the he's trying to teach her something about the world of men or she is like. Like what? What I really liked about the two of them, and whenever they were talking, and this happens a lot in London, is that this is another superhero fish out of water story with Diana in the world of men. But like, it's a fish out of water story where she walks into a room and says something in front of a group of people who are like, "That's ridiculous! What are you saying?" But it's not. It's not. Fun, it's not funny in the way that Thor was, where like Thor is like quite patently ridiculous in this world. Like this isn't her world, but her viewpoint's right. Like she's <laughs> yeah, right, and all the people ridiculous. around her are wrong. <laughs> so you're like, this is a really weird situation where I see you coming into this world where you don't really understand how it works. And like, even in like in its approach to women, because it's a period setting, she's the fish out of water, but she's the one that's right. <laughs> yeah, she's the she, one. She's like, aggressive. What the hell are you yeah, wearing? She, yeah. She's the direction that we should be working in, that we should be moving in. And I really enjoyed that. And I, I enjoyed that about the way they treated that character throughout. That 
you could be making jokes at the expense of that character. I mean, the ice cream moment is a perfect encapsulation of that, where it's just this wonderful moment where it's like, it could be, let's, you know, you could, you could make a gag there at her expense, but what we do instead is her discover something wonderful about this world and be really like, her reaction to it is delightful. And then just her like, like her gratitude to the guy who's given her this ice cream. Like you've done a great, or you, you should, should be, be very proud, proud of the word. Yeah. I, I just absolutely loved all of that stuff. So there are funny moments, but they're never at her expense. I, I just, yeah. And so all of the London stuff was great. And I think the, the Lucy Davis character works really well there as well. Um, just a, a, another female character in this world to immediately meet Diana and go, Oh wow, look at you. You're great. And she's not intimidated by her. She's just like, wow, what's, the, yeah, what, what do you want me to do next? Um, I really enjoyed that. And I thought her relationship with Steve Trevor was sweet, but also the way that the movie kind of called it out as being like a little bit backwards and a little bit of a, uh, for Diana to kind of raise another eyebrow at Steve Trevor, I thought was, <laughs> was fun as well. Mm hmm. I'm trying to think where do, where do we want to move from now? Is there is there anything we haven't hit that we that we want to get to in the main like section of the movie? I mean, just to talk about the villains, like specifically, I think the villain of this film is World War One, and anyone else is just sort of there to service that. Like, I did get the sense of oh, who's poison? I'd like to know more about her. And yeah, I mean, Dan- really... Danny Houston's there as a red herring, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. Like he's there as generic bad red herring. I do, um, I do kind of think the two of them, they do feel a bit parachuted in from another movie. Like they are, they're way more over the top than anybody else. There's, there feels like there's a slight. I mean, um, I can't remember which one of you two said it, um, whether it was directly to me or on Twitter, but um, there's a difference between cheesy and sincere. And some people have called this movie cheesy, but it's not. It's just sincere. But I feel like at times they're being cheesy rather than they're being sincere. hammy. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, a Dan- it's a Danny Houston villain performance. It's a cheese, being cheese and ham performance. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, again, but they're both there to serve plot functions. Like, they're really there to be, like, this, like, I mean, I mean, particularly Dr. Poison's there for that moment at the end. And James is right. You do, you do get a sense of this character who has, even, even though we don't really delve very deeply into her, we get the sense of a character who has been messed up by stuff in her past and in this world, at least, pointed in the, pointed in the direction of evil by Ares and has kind of embraced that. Oh, are, we, um, are we assuming that, um, so that she was a, a chemist who specialised in these kind of compounds, something goes wrong with an experiment and damages her face and that gives her a bitter outlook on the world and she decides to use her science for evil? Is is, is that the, I mean, that's the shorthand that we infer there, from this? Is, <laughs> the, like, is she, yeah. Seb, is she a comics character? Like her and Ludendorff comics characters? Or? Uh, I don't know about Ludendorff. Dr. Poison is, and, and he is a Wonder Woman villain, like not an especially um, well-remembered one. Um, but I think more just straight up evil to be honest mm-hmm. um in fact looking at it so i mean the the original one appeared in the golden age and was actually a nazi and that's what i mean about feeling okay. like she parachuted <laughs> in from another film it's the world war Two thing again um there is a there is a post-crisis one 
um, who's popped up from time. But time she's up. not like a big character or anything. No, not no. not at all. Although no. I imagine she'll be turning up soon. Probably yes. Uh, but no, I mean, if you, if you talk about big Wonder Woman villains, then then Ares is the one, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, but I mean, it, it, even Ares, I didn't care when he turned up. Like, like I said, like I I I cared about what it meant for Diana. But in terms of the the big fight and the monologuing and stuff, I just wanted to yeah. see her. I mean, <laughs> and I wanted to see I wanted to see her get to the moment where she kind of realized that kind of Steve Trevor had been kind of right about what he was trying to tell her about humanity, that it wasn't black and white. Like, I sort of, I wasn't even convinced that Ares was going to turn up at the end. <laughs> like it was that kind of that perfunctory moment of killing him off. Like could have just not happened as far as like, she could have killed Ludendorff and that could have been the, the sort of you ended the threat, the immediate threat. Although and I again, did, there is, well, I just want to say quickly as well, I did think like having uh, having Ares turn out to be the character it was was a kind of I liked it from a feminist perspective in that it gave Wonder Woman a villain to fight who was like this sort of old male power figure who yeah. like, yeah, really the control of the war was in his hands, not anyone else's. In a, in a general sense, actually, there is always a bit of an issue with female superheroes in that it feels like the obligation is to give them male uh, female villains. It's yeah. like they have to be like an equivalent somehow. So actually, yeah, the fact that she has a big fight sequence with a man at the end of this film is actually more unusual than you might expect. And like a man um, who who represents like this sort of entrenched yeah. male patriarchal she's, power. She's almost literally smashing the patriarchy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So again, all of that stuff, kind of thematic level, whatever. I think works fine. In terms of the actual fight with Ares, it does feel the closest to the rest of the DCU <laughs> in kind of like CGI throwing things at each other, and like when her action has felt so like fresh and specific to her earlier in the film, kind of being thrown backwards and forwards is uh, less interesting. I think. And I think that's why the the Chris Pine stuff works well because it does give you something a bit more tangible to grasp onto during during that finale. Um, and I've already talk, talked about how I think it it you know works well as a as a moment for that character, but also in service of Diana. Mm-hmm. Um, and then and then, but then I do think so. I think it I think it still gets the big moments right in that scene because it gets the gets the Steve Trevor sacrifice bit right and it gets the final Wonder Woman dropping the tank and laying the smack down on Ares stuff right um that does those last couple of moments where he throws the lightning at her and she just when she's just kind of like manipulating it round to um her like armbands mm-hmm. that's that's really cool and I think the actual, the moment after the battle's ended where everyone kind of takes off the gas masks and you see, yeah, that is just kind of good average blokes on each side who are just happy for the fighting to be over. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I liked that as well. So yeah, I, I mean, even, even as much as I didn't care about the actual fight itself, I still enjoyed yeah, the kind like of the, 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 the emotional, individual little part. The emotional beats land when they, when they need to. 
Hmm. And yeah, and I was with I was with Diana throughout that whole final act where mm-hmm. she's a, she she is a character who's seen the world kind of in a in a black and white sense, and then suddenly like the moment where she like she feels that like Steve has betrayed her by not believing in her, but then like feels her own overconfidence shatter when when she realizes that the guy she's killed wasn't Ares. And when she figures out that she's, she'd been manipulated by Ares as well mm-hmm. earlier in the film. Um, I just, I, I thought I, I tracked her emotionally throughout that final act. So as much as I didn't care about the action, I cared about the character. And again, we've, we, we spoke a lot about Gal Gadot and about Diana as a character in our spoiler free section. We haven't spoken about her much since because it's just kind of like, it's throughout the film. It's just a given. She is great. And, there are there are so many individual moments in all of the different scenes. Like, I loved the dancing. I loved how Patty Jenkins like shot the kiss and then cut away to like you know leave it to your imagination what happens after that. <laughs> but I also think I also think that it's nice because because we've had that gag about men being superfluous when it comes to pleasure. I almost thought it was like it was nice. It was like Steve Trevor was fill- fulfilling an emotional <laughs> need for her. Like what happened after that? Completely irrelevant. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and so I, I basically I think I'd come away from this movie going I'm willing to forgive almost all of the flaws because I was compelled by that character the whole way through and inspired by that character in a way that I hadn't been by a superhero yeah, I completely, for as long as I can remember. I completely agree and I, I sort of think like if Captain America 1 didn't exist people would think even more of this movie than they currently do because <laughs> I, I think a lot of the criticism Maybe not a lot of the criticism. Some of the criticism has been like, oh, they just made Captain America again. No wonder it's good. And it's like, well, you know, they didn't just do that. They made a better version of that that similar story. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I mean, and I'm probably the world's foremost first Avenger fan. And, <laughs> and also, well, I think the main, the main reason why this film would be better if Captain America didn't exist was that it would be set in World War II. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I, I guess one one other thing that we haven't mentioned yet, because we're probably going to be drawing this conversation to a close soon, but the the bit we haven't talked about is the framing sequence, the present day stuff with Diana working at the Louvre and receiving the photo from uh, Bruce Wayne that we saw in Batman v Superman. Yeah. What, what did you guys think of that stuff? Like, for <laughs> me, like to open the film with like Batman's trucks turning up at the loop like i found that really cringeworthy like when that happened i was like oh god are we really gonna do this like extended universe stuff straight off the bat and for it to it then... might have been nicer if it had just been at the end you could have just yeah. cut back to you could have still said what's triggered her remembering all of this is getting the photograph yeah. but it could have been at the end not right it did feel a bit like like don't worry stay interested here is a mention <laughs> of batman and like, I'm glad that they ignored it for the rest of the film, but like, stapling that fra- framing sequence onto the film. Uh, what, what, what I did want to say about that so scene much. is that it's, um, Batman being far more likable, not actually appearing. <laughs> like, in, like, it, appearing by way of a letter suddenly makes Bruce Wayne, like this version of Bruce Wayne, more likable than he is at any moment in Batman v Superman. <laughs> I do it's like, like, hey, he's not a complete dick after all. I do like the idea of her emailing Batman <laughs> at the end. And like, <laughs> Batman69 at gmail.com. <laughs> I think, I think you needed, because Wonder Woman was introduced in Batman v Superman and because this is a film that takes place 
um, a hundred years earlier. I think you probably did need some kind of framing sequence, but it felt like, it felt like, you know, the film itself viewed it as a necessary evil. Ah, uh, we kind of have to do this. And I, I, I think there was a way of doing it that maybe is literally just her arriving at work, opening up a letter for, or opening up a parcel, seeing the photo and then cutting to it. And then revealing, and then the Batman connections just at the end. I don't yeah. think we needed the like, Wayne trucks. And God, I don't that was needed. that was the worst. Like of everything in the film, that's the dumbest thing in there. Like Wayne trucks turning up, like just because. A, th- a thing that um that I found quite interesting was obviously obviously we see how the photo when the photo is taken and, and the photo you know seeing the photo with those characters around her. And I assumed when watching it, oh, they've recreated the photo, but with the actual cast members who appear in the film with with Chris Pine and 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 Gal Gadot. But actually, no. In in Batman v Superman, it was yeah, those actors, right. and it was that photograph. And I genuinely, I didn't even. So back in Batman v Superman, I never clocked that that was you and Bremner in that picture. <laughs> <laughs> I think, um, I think actually that was. I think Zack Snyder went and like did yeah. a day's work on on the Wonder Woman set because I think it was. It, Wonder it, Woman it, they was would have already started production. filming then, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. not necessarily filming, but certainly production. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, well, any any closing thoughts? I mean, other than I, I mean, I, I I can start us off by just saying that yeah, I I still maintain that this is a one of my favorite superhero movies of all time, and this version of Wonder Woman is um, it's just it's just an outstanding realization, and I'm so happy that there are going to be kids that are going to be able to go and watch Wonder Woman in the cinemas this week. And something I didn't mention actually earlier on. I was so glad that they shot it in a PG-13 yeah. way that there wasn't any, like, it didn't feel like a world and it didn't feel like, I mean, it, it, despite it being a war film, but it didn't feel like a character who you wanted to see some of the, like, more grim violence and the blood and all that kind of stuff. Like, I appreciated, I appreciated the way that Patty Jenkins made it accessible for everyone. And yes, it has battles and yes, it has, unpleasant stuff and it has death and all that but yeah it's it doesn't feel <laughs> unlike it doesn't fit it doesn't it, it doesn't feel like the violence is ever fetishized in a way that like say it is in logan or in a way that say it has been in a lot of the other dc movies yeah yeah i mean um, i, yeah, I so, agree with that and you basically made all the points i would have made so <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but yeah i just i just the, the fact that this movie is out there and that kids can go and watch it this weekend and it's been seen by as many people as it is all of the stuff outside of the context of the actual movie itself i'm so glad that this movie exists i'm so glad that this movie is good and i'm so excited to see kind of what it leads to yeah because if nothing else marvel must be looking at this and going like well they got there first so we've got to do it better and like mm. they must be thinking we're marvel we do superheroes better than anyone so let's do a female superhero better than anyone like just get on it for fuck's sake it just, I mean, it does kind of, it reflects badly on Marvel that it was this easy. <laughs> like, <laughs> especially, especially given that they had Patty Jenkins for a while. Well, well, yeah. Um, but you know, they're, they're working in the DCEU, which is a much less solid framework on which to build. There's so much more to overcome in terms of preconception. And by doing it first, they also, you know, have the difficulty of, well, what, what's the reaction of the kind of people who reacted to Ghostbusters 2016 going to be like? And it has completely and comprehensively stomped those problems into the ground. And it's just gone, no, all you have to do to make a good superhero movie about a female character is make a good superhero movie. <laughs> 
Um, I don't know. There is a bit more to it than that and in terms of getting the right director who can approach it in that right way and have it not be fetishized and all of that. But essentially, it's a good superhero movie made by good people. And well, it does. It sort of know. feels like the like for all DC's talk of and Warner's talk of being director led. This is the first that feels like it couldn't have been made by just anyone. Mm. Like Zack Snyder has his signature stuff, but like it feels very homogenized. Like Suicide Squad felt like the other two movies because it was following that lead, and it kind of you kind of got the sense of well, is this what Warner are doing with their films? Like, is this coming from the top down? But Wonder Woman is so unlike those mm. in and it's almost like, it's like every way. About, you know, it seeming like Patty Jenkins had a big hand in the script. You know, like Alan Heinberg is credited as writing this, and Alan Heinberg, you know, you you can see, I think. Uh, his hand in this as well in terms of being the kind of thing that he's done in the past but equally yeah it is obvious that patty jenkins is a huge creative influence not just as a director of this but in terms of what it's doing and it's you know um so yeah it is it is totally a yeah director-led thing yeah and because I, i like i said i think because so many of the elements come together so perfectly like it feels like it feels like a movie that's not pulling in different directions. It feels like a movie that knows exactly what it wants to do. And like, I, I, I we haven't mentioned the score. I thought the score was like gorgeous. The what, like the, the the strings that would like build during her big iconic moment. Given, given that but we then, know that, that then into the coming. into into the guitar lick, yeah, because just... you're waiting for that moment of well, it's obviously going to come. When is it going to come? And it's very well placed. And to to not have it in any of the Themyscira stuff. To, to break it out at the moment that they break it out. I, I just remember sat there and going, yep, that was exactly the right moment to break that theme out. Oh, I've, I remembered yeah, I've got one criticism actually. Ooh. Not of the score of the film. Like, it's another superhero movie where they're embarrassed by the name of the character. Oh, yeah. And I mean, I, 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 I knew going in that they, they weren't They don't, Wonder don't Woman even anything, nod to the fact that, like, yeah, they don't have some twacky newspaper <laughs> character going, like, Oh, you know, who is she? Like yeah. Wonder Woman, that'll do. Like they just Yeah, don't great. Bother. If there's if the if, if there's not a natural place to fit it into this movie, then don't like what why do they need to say it? I don't I don't care whether they say it or not. The one the film is called Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman is on the names of all the <laughs> is, is on the posters, and I didn't feel like the movie was embarrassed about anything about her. I think other movies have been, and I think other movies have been clunky. But I, I think I don't think omission is a sin on this occasion. Oh sure, I but like just, I just as a superhero I don't think it's fan, embarrassed. Like, I like them owning that kind of thing. And, like, I think... I mean, every... You know. I think they own so much about that character from the costume and the power set to the fact that even the lasso was in there. Um, I Yeah, I just don't think that that's a criticism I would level at this film. <laughs> and so it's I'm, not, I'm willing... It's not like I'm willing, I'm willing to, it's just... I'm just... I'm just willing to say that they just didn't have a natural spot for it, so they thought, well, we'll do it elsewhere then. Yeah. R- rather than rather than have, like, in Superman, some meaningless bloke in the back of a scene go, oh, that, that, that's just a Superman. <laughs> uh, yeah, like, no, no well, that's, the, that's the thing I hate, like, is them trying to shoehorn it in. Like, they, you know, they needed to come up with a good way of doing it. Yeah, and they haven't yet, and maybe the, and maybe that that's something that comes It'll in It'll probably future, happen in Justice League. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah. Perry White being like, what's yeah, the woman or, called? Wonder Woman, that would do. Yeah. Or, or we just drop Cisco in there from the Flash TV show because he's pretty good at that. <laughs> yeah. Okay, um, I think that's our Wonder Woman discussion 
wrapped up. Uh, we all really liked that movie, didn't we? Yep. Yeah. That's great. Okay, so I'm looking forward to now the comics that you're going to recommend me based on Wonder Woman. Oh, that's, and, uh, <laughs> that's a shame. <laughs> because <laughs> like yeah, this is another of those characters where you'll watch the film and go show me some more that's like that and we'll go wow there's not really anything like this it didn't doesn't really exist <laughs> seb's not going to recommend me a superman comic is he <laughs> no i i did i, I wondered about because actually genuinely i did think about finding you something that got that had the elements of what i liked about this in terms of how she's presented as a hero and maybe sort of the and also the the fish out of water stuff but no we basically need to recommend you um some important uh wonder woman comics even though there aren't very many but um anyone who's listening to this who remotely knows about comics will know exactly what the main recommendation from this episode is (laughs) Uh, so yeah, well, um, it's basically, so in, in 1987, after Crisis and with the, uh, Superman relaunch and the Batman, ch- uh, year one and all that kind of stuff, uh, DC went to do the same thing with Wonder Woman. Um, so it's, uh, the start of the relaunch run, um, kind of written, uh, well, written and drawn and overseen by George Perez, um, but also scripted initially by, um, Len Wine. Uh, sorry, no, uh, scripted later on by Len Wine, and there was another writer whose name I've forgotten, but was the scripter and was the person who was the original writer they tapped to do it. Uh, I should have that in front of me. But also the editor, Karen Berger, I think was a quite important influence on it. But basically, it's a full-on revamp of Wonder Woman and a relaunch and a, you know, a year one type story, continuity reset. And it's the first time that they really brought in heavily the uh, Greek mythology elements and redid the backstory and Ares is the villain um and actually like from from reading through this stuff there's there's more in the film of from this than I would have anticipated um i i think character wise she is quite different and Steve Trevor is completely different and plays a very different role he's not a love interest in in this era basically not least because he's right. quite a bit older than her um but there's there there is interesting stuff in terms of what it does and as i say I, I, it's really the first time I think pretty much ever that Wonder Woman was sort of comics that people really sort of took seriously and, and had, you know, a real sort of ethos and approach behind them. Um, so I reckon if you read the first seven issues, cause there's kind of a six issue arc, but then the seventh issue is the sort of, you know, the first arc is out of the way. This is really setting up the character in, in the world in which she'll exist from then on. Um, Perez, I think was on for, I think he wrote for about, 60 odd issues but he wrote and drew the first 24 so you could always go on and read some more of them but basically it depends if you like them they're quite dense because they're george perez comics um i've, I've probably talked about this <laughs> lots before, of tiny like panels titans and stuff lots of panels on a page so a lot happens in a in a single issue um but yeah it's but it's it's pretty much it's it's about as definitive a, a wonder woman comic as you'll find and it's definitely the biggest influence on the film like even um patty jenkins has said it's it's the one run that she really name checked regularly when talking about it. So yeah, excellent. Okay, I'll look forward to that one. Um, James, what have you got for me? Uh, I've just got one issue for you, although it's a uh, longer than normal issue. Um, it's the only Wonder Woman comic I've ever bought. <laughs> Which, so that's like that's probably telling you how uncelebrated those are because I've dipped my toe into pretty much everything, all the major characters. Yeah with the exception of Wonder Woman, because, like, she's just never appealed to me. Um, but I bought this one, which is Wonder Woman 600. 
Um, it was released in 2010 as like the anniversary issue, issue for the character. Basically, it's a little anthology of creators sort of looking back on Wonder Woman and what she means. And, you know, the, I think the main story and the main, the reason I picked it up was that it had George Perez drawing a story that kind of looked back on his run and touched on the supporting characters and stuff. Um, I think. So read that after you read. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's in the region of 64 to 100 pages. So it's a pretty specific, um, specific, a pretty substantial comic. Uh, and it gives you a kind of overview of the way different creators treat Wonder Woman and what they do with her and sort of elements of her mythology. Uh, so I think as a, as a taster, it'll be an interesting read for you. Uh, so that is just the one single issue, Wonder Woman volume one, issue 600. And just, just for completion's sake, the other writer on the, the Perez stuff is Greg Potter. Uh, I'm just looking at, apparently he did the first couple of issues, but then he worked in advertising. He was a creative director and he had to give up comics to devote more time to his advertising. <laughs> so he, 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 I think he was the initial writer and Perez was brought in as artist and then Perez started flinging ideas everywhere. And so they sort of gave it to Perez to drive the direction of it. Um, I should also add, I, I did actually read some Wonder Woman comics last year when DC did the rebirth. I read some of the, it's Greg Rucker, isn't it? Who did the yeah. Wonder <laughs> Woman rebirth stuff. And it was kind of like, alternating issues between origin stuff and like modern day stuff um and uh the origin stuff i thought was particularly strong i did fall off it but after watching the movie i think i might uh i might go back and uh catch up on some of that because there was some some really strong stuff in there and i think that that's probably going to be the run that people watching this movie are going to be able to run out and see like the first couple of trades there and ready to buy. And it is, and because there's origin stuff in there, it's, uh, it's probably a good one for this film. I would imagine. Uh, so maybe, maybe I should recommendation. (laughs) Maybe I should, maybe Seb and James should have to go off and read that this week. (laughs) I did read the first trade of Greg Greg Rucker, but as I say, I've just, it's rare that I've, got into a Wonder Woman comic and gone, yeah, I really like and get on with this. Yeah, so I don't like I'll Greg Rucker. So. <laughs> well, that's crazy. I've, I've genuinely yeah. never read anything that made me go, oh, I get it now. Like, mm. This yeah. sounds like an argument for another time. <laughs> um, we'll move on now to our final section, which is the pitch. And I mean, I guess most of our listeners could probably guess what I'm going to ask here. Um, it's, a, it's a pretty obvious one after seeing this movie. Um, which more obscure female superhero should get a solo movie next? So obviously we know about um we know that Captain Marvel's coming and and whatnot, but which which character should they should they pluck out from uh Marvel or DC or may or maybe elsewhere to to give a give a solo superhero movie to after the success of uh Wonder Woman. And I imagine if Hollywood's smart, they will be doing this with much more than one character. So this is this is a pitch that's uh that's very winnable. It's very real world winnable. The movie studio bosses literally want your answer to this question now. Um, and so James, I'll come to you first. No, Which can more obscure character? Go to Seb oh, first because because okay. last last week, last podcast, I was accused of stepping on his toes. <laughs> uh, are, and are you, are you concerned? Gonna, no, you I don't con- think we're going to have the same one. Are you that you've got the same one? No, I want this to be a okay. fair fight. <laughs> okay, so Seb, Seb, James doesn't want there to be any excuses. <laughs> Who's your female superhero? Uh, Zatanna. Um, I've always Ooh. liked Zatanna. I think she's a really good character. Um, for those who don't, I think you are already a bit familiar with her, aren't you? I think you might yeah. have had some stuff with her in. 
I liked her in Batman the Animated Series. Uh, well, that's because Paul I've... Dini is like the world's biggest Zatanna. Paul Dini yeah. is actually married to a stage magician who basically <laughs> looks like Zatanna. That's how much Paul Dini likes Zatanna. But yeah, so Zatanna so for those I, who... I saw that he'd written some Zatanna comics after yeah. that, and like I think I think the big collections just come out, and I'm gonna buy it because. Paul Dini and that character it sounds great to me. The stuff she was also in, she was also in Constantine when you recommended me some Hellblazer. Oh yeah, yeah, she turns up there because yeah, it was reckoned in that uh, it was reckoned in by Neil Gaiman in Books of Magic that they had had a relationship years previously, and then Garth Ennis picked up on that and brought her into Hellblazer mm. every so often. Um, but yeah, actually, if you want some, there's some good Paul Dini stuff with her in. That's actually when Paul Dini was on Detective Comics, and there was an arc where again there was a bit of retconning going on, but it retconned in that um, Bruce and Zatanna had known each other when they were kids um, and so yeah. there's a quite interesting relationship there for those who don't know her she's a she's a stage magician um, and the, the daughter of a golden age superhero called Zatara who was also a, a stage magician um, and like so she sort of she starts out as an illusionist and then discovers that she has these magical powers um, and she casts spells by speaking backwards what I particularly like about her is um, I mean I, I would describe her pretty much as DC's equivalent of Doctor Strange um, in that she's you know certainly if you were looking at it from a movie perspective obviously DC has got other mystical characters mystical characters coming out there whatever um, but what I like about Zatanna is that mystical characters generally who are like kind of magicians and, and deal in the occult tend to be quite angsty and burdened by their power and all that kind of stuff and, and, you know, very sort of, uh, you know, just serious, basically. And what I like about Zatanna is that she's a really <laughs> cheerful, optimistic, likable character. I should who have gone also just happens to be a magician. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I just think, I think as a, you'd have to do a bit of work with the costume. The, the costume wouldn't really stand up to movies. She got a redesign actually for the new 52 because she was in Justice League Dark and, and that would probably work better because she actually has trousers. Um, but <laughs> rather than fishnets. Um, but yeah, I think, I think as a Tana movie could be a lot of fun, could be basically DC's equivalent of Doctor Strange. So yeah, I, I have a casting suggestion, but I don't actually want to say it because I feel like it's one that you'll hate and that might lose me the pitch. <laughs> okay. So I'm going to say it anyway, I think Zoe Deschanel. Yeah, I hate it. Um, <laughs> um James. Seb's, Seb's giving you a little opportunity right at the end. <laughs> what's your what's your pitch? Well, so basically, I had the same kind of approach, which which is that like take a character who's not necessarily burdened by their powers and who's quite fun and a bit sexy and sort of all the best parts of female superheroes. Uh, but that I want I want to have a Marvel Cinematic Universe She Hulk film. Oh yeah. Because, like, basically, She Hulk's always a character that I thought, like, when you hear the the name She Hulk and you hear, oh, she's a cousin of Hulk who is also a Hulk, (laughs) it just sounds so dumb. And then, but then when you actually read it within the comics concept context, you're like, oh, great character. Yeah, the thing is, like, they know it's dumb. Like, she was created basically for copyright reasons to stop someone else doing like the female Hulk. Like that's the only reason she exists. And yet she's had the most consistently good comics of almost I'd any say, character. I'd say, I was going to say probably outside of Daredevil, like since the early eighties, if there's a new She-Hulk series, you can pretty much guarantee it's pretty Yeah, exactly. Good. Like even the current one, which I haven't yet read, which is just called Hulk, I think is getting some pretty good reviews and I'm looking forward to picking it up. Like it's it's very different from what's gone before because it's basically about post traumatic stress disorder. Yeah. But, 
Uh, but at the same yeah, time, very good. good take. So it's like, th- like the fact that the character is ridiculous allows you to do basically anything with her. And like, I think if the MCU could nail anything, it's the tone of She-Hulk, which is just like, it's often treated as an outright comedy. And like, if nothing else, like you don't get women being the comic relief characters much, especially when they're the lead in the film. Like Wonder Woman has these kind of moments of, you know, jocularity or whatever, but she's not the funniest character in her own film. And I think it might be good for She-Hulk to to have that chance to make people laugh as well as inspire mm-hmm. them. Like that's that's the yeah. thing we're missing from the landscape now that there's a proper superhero female superhero film. And I do I do wonder, like I said, because I always thought that the character would be so difficult to sell conceptually, but when you've got a shared universe and you could like introduce her almost in the background of another movie and then and then then launch mm-hmm. her own movie after that. Uh, I, yeah, I think it. I think it probably is in this era a bit more feasible than it would have been ever before. I mean, the, the like the pitch for She-Hulk is really simple. It is just Ellie McBeal with superpowers. <laughs> like whether you like the idea of that or not is debatable. But I love the I love the idea. Well, quite. Of that. But like that's just how you do it because like that already had the right mix of like drama and comedy, comedy and ridiculousness. So just put a few fights yeah. in that. You've you've got your film. We've already got Robert Downey Jr. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, who should play? I think Zoe Deschanel would be good. <laughs> um, I'm going to do this again, and I don't oh. care that it seems like it's it's me, uh, like bailing out. But I want to see both of those movies. I want to see a She-Hulk movie, and I want to see a Zatanna movie. And um, I think they would both work now within their given respective cinematic universes. So. Yeah, let's get them both made on the proviso that Zoe Deschanel signs up for both and then has to drop out of both because of scheduling <laughs> conflicts. It's a Justice League dark situation all over again. So you're gonna have to, you're both gonna have to work on the casting, but otherwise I'm sold on both of these concepts. So you both win the pitch this week, as opposed to in previous weeks where maybe sometimes you both lost. <laughs> um, and also the other correct answer is Miss Marvel. But we'll, uh, we'll, that's, that's, that's one to say for another day. Um, okay. Well, I think that's it for this week, you guys. Um, but before we go, we do have, um, a small announcement, um, about, uh, the future of Cinematic Universe and as, uh, pushing into some, um, exciting new territory. Um, if I was to say you can find more episodes of Cinematic Universe at cinematicmultiverse.com, that still is kind of true, but it will now redirect you to cinematicuniverse.com. We we own the URL and everything now. We're at cinematicuniverse.com. It, it, wa- it wasn't available when we first set up the website, <laughs> which is why we had to no. fudge it as Cinematic Multiverse, but circumstances have changed. Yeah, so we, we, we're now there. We're also at cinematicuniverse.co.uk if you want to find us that way. But basically, cinematicuniverse.com is now going to be at the home to... Not just the podcast, uh, but lots of other writing as well. To begin with, from the three of us, um, we are going to be writing features and news and reviews. You can find right now a lot of, um, a lot of, uh, movie news up there, superhero movie news. You can find my review of Wonder Woman, um, some, uh, features and stuff that we've, that we've put together. It's, uh, it's an exciting new hub for us and uh yeah we're now not just going to be a podcast we're going to be a website as well where you can find all of your kind of like 
comic book movie and TV related. So, fun. I mean, what that means is next time Doug Lyman pulls out of a movie, you don't have to wait a week and a half for us to, to hear what we think about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and so it's, it, it's just there and you can go to it now and you can, you can find all of our written content as well. Um, and, and hopefully you will do that. We're going to be, we're, we're putting a lot of time and effort into it. Seb has built a website that looks incredible, I think. And it's just now me and James have to try and fill it with words <laughs> that make sense. Is that, is that um, enough to win me a pitch at some point? <laughs> Can I just bring up if the I, website? <laughs> if I, yeah, pro- probably, probably, because I wouldn't have wanted to do it. I wouldn't have been capable of doing it. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, so now, so now that means that um, a bunch of stuff that I normally say at the at the end of the podcast is going to change because we uh, we've changed the ways where you can find us online and get in touch. So the bit that stays the same, if you're enjoying us as a podcast, please do subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, or your podcast app of choice. And in terms of supporting us on Patreon, Patreon is still going to be like specific to the podcast that is supporting the podcast. And we're yeah. kind of doing the website stuff on top of that, but it might also be somewhere where we can host some of the additional content that yeah. we're creating. But, so, but, um, but when we're not using Patreon to support the website, we're using Patreon no. to specifically support the production of the podcast still. Yes. <laughs> Which will so we'll continue there. as normal, like no change there. Yeah. Yes, the pod the podcast will will move forward in exactly the same way it has done with minisodes and with uh, main episodes. You know, every week, and we'll uh, we'll we'll yeah, we'll just have the website stuff on top of that. So the extra stuff to now say is that you can find more episodes of the show at cinematicuniverse.com. You can get in touch via Facebook. Um, just still search for Cinematic Universe on Facebook, and you'll find us. Um, on Twitter, we are now at Cine underscore verse. We didn't want to be podcast specific anymore. And unfortunately, at Cinematic Universe is too many letters for Twitter, so we couldn't be that there either. So we are now at Cine underscore verse if you want to contact us there. And if you want to email us, then you can send an email to editorial at cinematicuniverse.com or you can address it to any of our, indiv- any of our yeah, individual names. If you're names upset with the things that Seb has been saying, <laughs> as we often send it are, to Seb. you can send it directly to Seb. James don't want to have to read that. <laughs> and sim- similarly, if you're outraged by something James has said, um, send it to Joe. I mean, I mean, honestly, yeah. Mostly though, the, the stuff that our listeners have been most annoyed in the past uh, in the past month with us about was uh, Seb slagging off Fleetwood Mac. That was the most con- <laughs> that was the most controversial thing that has ever happened on this podcast. <laughs> Stand by it. Yeah. <laughs> um, if you want to know more about actually what we're going to be doing on cinematicuniverse.com, we are going to be releasing an extra kind of little bonus episode um, on the feed just to explain exactly what we're going to be covering there, what our intentions are, what you can expect from the website. Um, so if you want to know more in detail about that, you can listen to it. But basically, just head to cinematicuniverse.com and you should find a lot more content from us uh, than than you've been getting in the past with just the podcast. Um, okay, um, well, that's it. Um, uh, go watch Wonder Woman. It's fantastic. But thanks for listening, you guys, and we will see you next week. Goodbye. Goodbye. In case you people have forgotten, this block operates under the same rules as the rest of the city. Mama is not the law. I am the law. Cinematic Universe returns in two weeks' time. 
with dread. <laughs>